This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. We got a great program uh, lined up for you. You know, slowly but surely, we're going to give you everything you need to learn on this earth. Right here on the Matt Townsend Show. The whole great big wide world earth. I said slowly. I mean, it'll take 30 to 50 years. So by that time, Ben will be married. We'll get there. Uh, eh. We'll see. Ben. He's like, eh. I don't know. It could happen, Ben. We got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about uh, money. Trump and Sanders have kind of upended the whole political money game. Trump brought in his own, which is handy when you make half a billion dollars a year. And Bernie Sanders brought in, I don't know, 30,000 donors or a million donors probably, $27 a head. Boom. Loaded. So what do you do? How do you compete going forward? And uh, do we really need to have our presidential elections cost billions of dollars? Well, one decision in the Supreme Court enabled it all. We'll be talking about that in a few moments with Dr. Heath Brown. He'll be uh, walking us through some of his ideas in an upcoming book or actually a recently released book, Play, Pay to Play Politics. So we'll get into the money game. Uh, also, we got to talk about um, the airplane crash in Egypt Air. So we'll get to that as well. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Presumptive Republican presidential nominee. I wish we could stop saying that. Just call him the nominee. Donald Trump on Wednesday released the names of 11 people he would nominate at the Supreme Court to secede uh, Antonin Scalia. The Trump campaign hopes the move will quell the fears of Republicans who have been skeptical of his potential to dominate a true conservative to the bench. Three are women. The other eight are men. None of the choices are minorities. Interesting. Yeah. One of Donald Trump's candidates for the Supreme Court has a history of comparing the Republican presidential hopeful to Darth Vader. On mm. Wednesday, Trump mentioned Texas Supreme Court Justice Don Willett as one of the 11 people he was considering for the U.S. Supreme Court. But Trump was apparently unaware or unperturbed <laughs> by his comments. He dubbed him the GOP nominee Darth Trump. Says, we'll rebuild the Death Star. It'll be amazing, believe me, and the rebels will pay for it. Signed, Darth Trump. Oh Willett wrote on, he put that on Twitter last month. Millet's repeat mockery of Trump traces back to last June when he questioned Trump's ability to select candidates for the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, and now he's on the list. And now he's on the list. But apparently it's a very conservative list. Like, yes. uh, it's, he, all the conservatives are totally excited. I mean, it's, I think it's smart of Trump to do stuff like this. Put out your lists. Play, out, play to his base. Play, play well. Play to the base. But also start yeah. sending out your economic team. Start putting out these lists, and then you don't seem as crazy. A Fox News national poll released Wednesday shows Donald Trump ahead of Hillary Clinton in a head-to-head match with a 45-42 percent edge. Fox News says Clinton led Trump 48 to 41 percent in the same poll last month. When it comes to women, Trump had a 14-point deficit with Clinton winning 58 to 36. Trump wins with a wider margin among men, 55 to 33 percent. Yesterday was the big Facebook conservative thought leader summit. Yes. What do you say? I wonder how that went. Really? 
I don't know, Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, issued a statement following the meeting. He said, thank you to everyone who rearranged their schedules and made sacrifices to be here today. It's important that Facebook remains a platform for all ideas and that we continue to give every person a voice. He emphasized that conservatives are an important part of the platform, citing Donald Trump's massive fan base. He said the reality is conservatives and Republicans have always been an important part of Facebook. Donald Trump has more fans on Facebook than any other presidential candidate, and Fox News drives more interactions on Facebook on on its Facebook page than any other news outlet in the world. It's not even close. Hmm. So, so then the uh, the allegations that they were you know throttling information that's conservative versus liberal is not true according to facebook according to the articles and the people the used to be these curators of that little part up in the right hand corner that i really don't think a lot of people look at the trending thing because it's above the ads yeah right nobody looks at the right hand column because it's just full of stuff okay they're trying to sell me things you don't even need it yeah but it's there and the people that worked on that little section say that they're have been some issues with mm-hmm. that. Um, uh, one of the, what was one of the, oh, I, I was hearing an interview about that, and they said the reason that they, it used to be an algorithm that would do that trending topics, or part of it was an algorithm that's kind of sketchy that way, but it turned into more human curation yeah. because during, um, oh, what was it? It was uh, the Ferguson Riots, right? right. The Ferguson protests and some of the civil unrest that was going on. You'd go to Facebook and in that trending topics, it had like some cat videos and it had a. It had a. You would miss big news. But they said the reality is the things that trend on Facebook are things that don't matter. Yeah. Right? They're they're celebrity news, cat videos. It's not the news. Yeah, right. So they had to kind of change it and, and kind of make it work so that news would actually make it to that list. So you know, they they tried to put humans involved to help it so, so that humans it was legit. Maybe put stuff on the list. Yeah. That and then you could see people biased. with their personal bias yeah. just making selections. That so makes sense. It was just they took some flack when the, come the, on, the, no the harm, pro- no foul. It's Facebook. Come on. I, I think what it was is protests were happening and all that was trending was a bunch of uh, ice bucket videos. Remember those? <laughs> yeah. That's what was trending at the time. Oh. Those are good days. This story out of Colorado, a five-year-old girl suspended from kindergarten after bringing a weapon to class, only that weapon was a $5 see-through frozen bubble blaster. The girl's mother, Emma, told Fox that while she was would never have knowingly let her daughter take that toy to school, the girl put it in her backpack before leaving the house. The school responded in a statement saying that while we hear and understand the parents of the student being concerned about this discipline in light of the student's age and the type of item, the suspension is consistent with our district policy. The bringing of weapons, real or facsimile, to school while students cannot uh, only create a potential safety concern, but also cause a distraction for our students in the learning process. Kimmy, Kimmy, put your bubble gun down. Put it down. Put it down. Taze it. That would fix the problem. A bubble gun. She would. Yeah. It. it a it, bubble blower. It is a plastic. Yeah. See-through. It looks like a fish, and there's a <laughs> bottle of bubbles screwed into it, and you pull the trigger, you and it blows a, bubbles. You mean a clip. Well, it's a clip of bubble. Don't call it a bottle. It's a clip. It's a <laughs> yes, bubble there's clip. A, there's a, it was totally a threatening weapon. But have you ever had like a bubble with um, with detergent? What's it called? With uh, the soap. The soap yeah. getting your eye? Yeah, you're right. Burns. Dangerous. Dangerous weapon. Burns. That's assault. Colorado's had a couple of these come down the through the news cycles where you, you see a kid bring something that doesn't look like a threatening weapon yeah. at all, 
But because it qualifies, they kick the kid out of school for a well, while. What about the old days, like when you just bring a switchblade <laughs> and you never got in trouble? Right. Because it wasn't even yours. It was like your brother's friends and you just brought it. I've thought about that. When I was a kid, you'd have Christmas and then the teachers are trying to get the kids focused. So to help us get past that, we'd have like uh, about a half hour and you'd bring your favorite toy you right. got for Christmas. Pellet gun. And like all these boys are bringing like tanks and attack helicopters. Mm-hmm. Would that be, yeah, would that be acceptable not or no? Not acceptable anymore. Wow. It's like my every toy I had as a kid would, yeah. be, would be banned. I had a friend that carried a knife in his pocket every day of his life. Hmm. I mean, he had like 50 things in his pocket because you never know. Right. String, a ball. One jack. A domino. A, a domino. <laughs> and, his, and his blade. And he was great because he was the guy, hey, hey, Lloyd. That was his name. Lloyd, hey, give re- me the, give me your, give me your knife. He's the only guy that had a knife. He's the guy that always had a rubber band. Always. He had everything. <laughs> like, never rubber band? He really was. He was perfect. His pockets were loaded and he, he would jingle when he'd walk. That's funny. But he had everything he needed. But he couldn't go to school anymore you packing a knife yeah i am hmm. it's not tsa anymore folks it's not just the tsa now it's your local education board man egypt air 66 yes. people they they crashed they, in the mediterranean they believe yeah it's funny because they don't no one wants to say anything except donald trump except donald trump who tweets he, it out it's terrorism he called it a terrorist attack this morning i wonder if donald becomes president is he going to quit tweeting he says he's not. He says it's the greatest way to, to communicate with the people. Not really. No, it's really not. He likes it. He approves. It's Trump certified. <laughs> Just like Trump steaks. So the plane goes down. 66 people are on board flying like 150 or something miles away from uh, from Egypt and swerves, they say, and disappears. Some say terrorism. Some say, there were three supposed like marshals on the airplane. Right. But what do you do? Yeah. They'll figure it out. But that's sad. Sixty-six families are now waiting to find out what happened to their mem- their family members. Tragic. Um, this whole uh, I don't know what do we want to call it. The whole uh, Trump f- push. Okay. I really think – Like for or against? Well, I think, I think Trump – Or both. I think his little release of the, of the Supreme Court thing, I think that right there starts to show he's getting organized. To me, things like that are smart. Putting his economic team and announcing it, I think that would be smart. Starting to put people in positions. I think if you put about 50 people around Donald Trump, he might float. Hmm. It sounds negative. But all of a sudden, I'm sitting there thinking, if I knew that I had uh, Mayor Giuliani in charge of security and Donald wasn't tweeting, that sounds smart. Giuliani's a tough cookie. He got rid of the mafia in New York. Well. No, he totally got rid of them. Okay. Apparently, Mitt Romney gave up. Yeah, he's given up the ghost, if you will, when it comes to the never say Trump or never Trump movement. Not doing that anymore. He's out. Well, it's hard. Nobody wanted to run. Well, nobody wanted to run. Apparently, all the uh, the, the main – there's like three main Romney and a couple journalist type yeah. things that they, they've, they've all Crystal. started to kind of drop out. Yeah. 
Because the movement itself is it's pointless because he's going to win. Do you know who was on the list, though, of potential candidates? <sighs> to run? One, it blow my mind. Dallas Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban. Oh, yeah, yeah. I read that last week. Really? Yeah. Is he? No. Okay. They, they just looked at it as he's an outspoken billionaire that's on TV because he has a show called Shark Tank, if you didn't know. Oh, I love Shark Tank. So they're like, oh, well, we have, a, we have a, someone else that could be Trump-esque. And he's like, no. And he did an interview. Trump-esque? He did an interview on CNN saying this is – he goes, it's pointless at this point. I mean, yeah. you're so far into it trying to get an organization together and, and, and you have to have publicity so people can know you exist and it's just too much. Um, yeah. Too, too much to, to get together. This should have happened six months ago. Exactly. I should have uh, – we'll, we'll have to talk about the money thing because how do, too, do you raise enough money? I guess Mitt was raising the money for whoever was going to do this. But Yeah. Um, so last night I trained – I finished training 15 new coaches to coach my program. And and then I introduced the I, the pro coaching program to a bunch of other people that want to be coaches. I had the coolest thing happen. So a guy came up to me after, handed me a coin – that was 26 years of sobriety in AA. Hmm. And, and then he just he, – he, I guess he's supposed to give it to somebody that inspired him. And he hands it to me and I'm like – it was like the coolest thing ever. What do you say? I, I was saying I couldn't – I didn't know what to say. I just hugged him and I said thank you. And all of a sudden I'm thinking some guy has put 26 years into, into doing something super hard. And then he has this purpose to still go share that message with people. He's – he hasn't tasted alcohol for 26 years, but he still shares the message as if he's totally got it. We need to get more of that spirit back in this country. <sighs> We're going to start right here on the show. We need a coin. Will you go have a coin minted? Um, do we have budget for that? Because to, sure. to mint no, coins, no, 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 no. you have to spend money. Yeah, but just talk to Don. Really? Don will do it. There's the slush fund? Don loves <laughs> our ideas. We have a benefactor? Yeah. Okay. Don't you think that's cool? You hand a guy, he has a coin, he gets a coin every year, and then his purpose is to basically share it. Hmm. Keep it to remember and then share it. So It's what, May? <clears throat> so he's got seven months left? Yeah. He'll probably just get another one. Okay. I just, I mean, what well, if he meets somebody out. else? This one's worn. He's what if he meets it. someone that's more inspiring than you? Well, I doubt that. Okay. <laughs> I don't know where you'd find that guy. I'm just, you know, possibility. I mean, it could happen. Yeah. But I don't think Trump's coming to Utah. Okay. Or Hillary. So pretty much got that, that Those are the only inspirational people beyond you as the no. two candidates? Believe me. Okay. There's, there's, he could do a lot better. <laughs> it's, uh, it's good. We, we are going to, we got to get to our guest. Uh, Heath Brown, Dr. Heath Brown should be joining us in a few moments. Talking about politics and money. It's gone amok, uh, don't you think? One crazy court settlement one court decision back in the day citizens united opened up the floodgates to crazy money to PACs, and um it's changed the game in such a way that you you have to have the money to play and yet uh the money doesn't necessarily ensure you you're getting the best candidate it doesn't so we'll be talking about uh, money and interestingly, two of the top three candidates have been dodging uh, uh, the traditional methods of becoming a president by either just having the people pay for it or having uh, paying for it yourself. Is that the way we want to run this as well? Stick with us, folks. Trying to understand money and politics up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's no secret that money is the key to political survival. From the public to presidential candidates, uh, the complaints about corrupting influence of money plays and the power it plays in politics are never in short supply. In fact, even if you notice, we have uh, two multi-multi-millionaires running and are the two top candidates running right now. Um, Donald Trump, a billionaire, and Hillary Clinton, worth hundreds of millions, I believe. Money, it matters, and uh, but should it? Our guest today, Dr. Heath Brown, says that while money is often harmful to our political process, it's not always in the way we expect or directly observe. Maybe money isn't playing the role you think it is, but it's still playing a role. And he's here today to uh, joining us on the phone from New York to talk to us more about his research with money and American politics. He is an assistant professor of public policy at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the Graduate Center at the University of New York. Dr. Heath Brown, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, it's a real pleasure. Great to have you here. And you have a new book uh, you just barely brought out, didn't you? Pay to Play Politics? That's, that's exactly right. The book came out, I guess, about a, a month ago now and is, is out there to be read on this exact subject about trying to understand better how money influences politics. It, it influences politics in some complex ways, and the aim of the book is to try to better explain that. I love that. And I want the, the goal of the show is just to inform, to teach people. Um, we know, and we've talked about it before on the show, about Citizens United in 2010 was a, a Supreme Court decision that changed a little bit of the, the kind of the pay-to-play political system. Talk to us about what was, what was going on before with money, before 2010, and now what are the differences? Yeah, so we've had regulated political uh, money for, for a while now, really since the early 1970s when the federal government stepped in and said that uh, there had to be rules that could be enforced. So they created a federal agency that was in place to place some limits on how much you could give to candidates and limits on how other groups could participate. So that's where we get political action committees, so-called PACs, and all the rules about how much you could give and, and kind of the caps on, on how much you're allowed to give. If we fast forward 40 years or so from that early 1970s period to, uh, to our current time period, much has changed. A lot of what's changed is the volume of money has increased a lot, and it's increased a lot prior to Citizens United. But Citizens United had this effect of allowing all sorts of groups, including corporations, to give much more money than they could in the past. They now can give nearly unlimited amounts of money uh, to what are called uh, super PACs, which are groups that can support candidates as long as they don't coordinate that support directly with the candidate. So the impact of Citizens United was to take off some of the remaining regulations on how corporations and, and the very wealthy could participate in elections. And, and with super PACs, I guess that allowed um, a person to donate as much money as they wanted to a candidate, but, but they donate it to the PAC. Right, exactly. And, and a PAC is just like a, an organization. So let's say you had a candidate that you were interested in supporting, and you could give money directly to that candidate, but that would be capped. You'd only be able to give around $2,700 directly to the support that candidate. Now, let's say you were very interested in supporting them in, in some other ways. You could create a super PAC and give that super PAC as much money as you wanted, and it could buy ads, it could buy 
all sorts of ways to support the candidate. Now, as long as that organization that you gave to isn't directly coordinating with the candidate, they can do all sorts of things to help that candidate get elected. So what the, the implication of this is, is individuals uh, can, can now support candidates with much more money than they could directly in the past. Hmm. And uh, I guess also individuals with interests, right? I mean, it seems like there's a difference, and maybe there's not, between a Bernie Sanders you know, fan that loves him, that throws $27 and, and to his campaign and has done that twice, as opposed to a major company that gives a million dollars to a super PAC. Yeah, I mean, what we know about who gives is is it's not it's not as diverse as those who vote, right? We, right. we have a, a voting system where the where the young vote, the old vote, people from all sorts of states vote, people of all sorts of different races and ethnicities vote. When we look and compare that to campaign finance, uh, the money. Let's just talk geographically. The money co- comes uh, uh, much more from a, a handful of cities including the city that I live in, New York City, mm-hmm. and the San Francisco area and Los Angeles and Chicago. And so there's not nearly as much diversity in, in who's giving to support candidates as there are in voting. And, and some people think that's a problem, think that's an unusual facet of our political system that on the one hand is so very democratic, but on the other hand doesn't look democratic at all. Right. That's interesting. I didn't know it was really down to two or three cities. Is that so? so – What's the downside? I mean, I know a lot of what we hear in the Democratic election is more about Wall Street, Wall Street money, which I guess is the New York City money. I don't know. Uh, The Wall Street money and the impact on Wall Street and the collapse of the economic system, yet the Wall Street people didn't fall. So they're obviously being paid off for all of their – I mean, it's almost like this this pay-to-play belief. Is that what's going on? You know, what what doesn't seem to be going on is a rash of, of corruption of the illegal variety. Uh, corruption is illegal, and, right. and paying politicians for favors, uh, uh, giving a campaign contribution and getting a job in government, uh, we've made that illegal a long time ago, and there actually is, is not that much of that going on. So that kind of concern, and, and I think people are very worried about that, but that's, that's not as pre- prevalent and, and not nearly as prevalent as that more hidden kind of influence, influencing the, the agenda of politicians. That's really what we, I think, where we, we start to see where the money is influential. And so if an industry, let's say, gives a lot of money to a congressional committee, it seems to affect their agenda. Now, that doesn't mean that any member of that committee, be it in the Senate or the House, is changing their vote. Uh, they're not necessarily changing their mind about whether they support or oppose some policy, but where it fits on the agenda, whether it's something that's going to be taken up by Congress or not taken up by Congress, that's some of where we see this influence. That's, that's one of the reasons why it's hard to observe. These are, these are decisions that happen often behind closed doors. Hmm. As a result, it's very hard to know exactly what's going on. What do you see? I mean, there's obviously some type of a groundswell happening in the anti-establishment world, um, because I, I just remember Bush had a pack, uh, Cruz had packs, all of these, all of these people had packs, and yet one by one, the guy that was self-funding that could also get billions of dollars of um, free airtime, he he just kind of rolled over all of them. 
I guess it, what it might tell us is that having the money doesn't always matter. I mean, or having the money from PACs doesn't always matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter in that simple way. The, the candidate who has the most money doesn't always win. So that, that's something that, that we know. Uh, having more money doesn't seem to, to buy electoral victories. The, having the money does make uh, does change who's uh, going to be in the race. So if we look not at the presidential race where things are so unusual, but at the congressional race or at statewide races or, or local races, that's where I think we see having money and having the ability to, to raise money has a big uh, influence. Uh, I mean, you could think about your, your listeners could probably think of the people that they know who might make a good uh, member of the city council or, or who might have good ideas for state government. But they're unlikely to run because they, they realize that they would have trouble even putting together just a couple of thousand dollars among their right. friends to run, just to do the most basic. I think that's where people really are, are worried about this, where it doesn't affect the final uh, votes because the people in the race have already been self-selected in a certain way. This is one of the reasons why I think people are exciting, excited about uh, public matching programs where individual donations can be grown from the $1 you give to $3. Uh, given to the candidate. These kinds of new experiments that New York City is trying and, and Seattle, Washington are trying, I think are what get people excited about changing some of the ways in which our elections are run. And I guess public matching would be, so if you raise a dollar from your people or your followers, then the state or the gov- or the state or the, the party would then donate matching funds? Yeah, exactly. And so in New York City, it's a six to one match. And so uh, if you gave uh, uh, to a, a candidate who qualified for this program ten dollars, uh, they would ultimately get sixty dollars, hmm. uh, which would meet, re- greatly change where candidates would go looking for money. Uh, if you knew that uh, the the constituents in the neighborhood that you were running in uh, could have their money grown by that size, uh, you really change who's able to have a um, effect on on the election. Um, these are programs that are kind of in their infancy, uh, but I think are very exciting. The program in, in Seattle is the other one where they're essentially giving out, uh, going to be giving out uh, uh, campaign vouchers, which will allow people to uh, uh, divvy up a, a pool of money uh, as they choose and, and support candidates in a way that might also uh, really change. Because, you know, even a $100 or $10 campaign contribution for some people is a lot of money if, if they don't have spare money to spend. Yeah. Changing that by, by giving out uh, money for people to spend is another option that some places are considering. It's, I think it's fascinating. I guess we also have to think about what we want to create, right? If we want an involved electorate, uh, th- th- there might be better ways. It seems like, um, it seems like you know, Bernie Sanders has been able to involve his own followers in a way that I think is ideal, right? We we want people to be that involved and even paying as you go. I think that uh, a more involved electorate, uh, a larger percentage of, of the eligible voters voting is good for democracy. Uh, a larger uh, portion of the country participating in giving small donations to candidates is likely a very good thing for our democracy. More participation has almost always been good for the country, and I think that there anything that can be done to increase participation in all sorts of ways. Yeah. And, and voting and, and giving campaign contributions, there's just two things. There are all sorts of other things 
that uh, residents and, and voters can do. And each one of those, I think, enhances the democracy in numerous ways. In fact, let's talk about that, Heath, when we come back. We're speaking with Dr. Heath Brown, and he is a professor, assistant professor at uh, public, of public policy at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the Graduate Center at the University of New York. He's also of, uh, the author of a brand new book, Pay to Play Politics, How Money Defines the American Democracy. He's uh, with us right now talking to us about money and politics. And folks, we need to learn this. We need to know what's going on. It's not enough to just say they're corrupt. We have to we have to think through it and and get involved for heaven's sakes. We'll come back more with Dr. Heath Brown right here on the Matt Townsend show. to the Matt Townsend Show. We are on the line with Dr. Heath Brown. Dr. Heath Brown's an assistant professor of public policy at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice um, at uh, University of, uh, at New York University. And he is um, he wrote an article on the website, theconversation.com, that we found, Are Trump and Sanders Rewriting the Rules in Politics? He also has a, a brand new book that is uh, out, Pay to Play, how Money Defines the American Democracy, and we're picking his brain to figure out uh, what really the impact of money has. Dr. Heath Brown, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, of course. Talk to us, because, I mean, money, it's important, or these people, I mean, these are, a lot of these people are, you know, they're business people, they're successful, they know what return on investment looks like. And um, they they put money in to these to the coffers, and a lot of them. It seems like you tell me they'll play every side of politics. They'll play. They just they want influence, and sometimes they're not just. It's not just partisan influence, right? Yeah, I, I think you're right that um, there's a lot of contributors who will give to Republicans and Democrats, and and who, whoever else is in the race and has a good shot of winning. And so they they tend to want to be in the game. They want to uh, whoever wins to be able to call on uh, the ear of a uh, member of Congress, whether it's at the national level or at the state level. And so they tend not to be as uh, deeply partisan as we sometimes might think. And sometimes it's portrayed. They're interested in having access and they want that access over a long long period of time. And so whether the Democrats are in control or the Republicans are in control, they want to be a part of uh, the decision-making process. And so I think you're right in, on that case. Is, is, is it possible, like Donald Trump's made a really big deal about being self-funding um, his campaign. I think he, in the article you said he spent $17 million of his own money um, and received 7% from some donors, large donors. But is it possible, and is that, is that ideal, to have self-funding candidates um, because otherwise it seems like billionaires are the only ones that could be president. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, while there are lots of appeals to a candidate not accepting large, large donations, on the other hand, there are some risks that come with candidates who are only able to self-fund. And I think a lot of people worry about just that thing. What would a, what would a system look like if everyone had to 
uh, fund their own campaigns. You would likely get exactly what you just alluded to, which is only the very rich being able to run for office. That's not what anyone wants. We want uh, anyone who has a, uh, a legitimate chance to, to provide service to uh, local, the lo- their locality, the state, or the, the country to have a chance to participate. And I, th- I think this is one of the reasons also that Donald Trump appears to be shifting from the self-funding approach that he took during the primaries to a much more traditional approach uh, during his move to the general election campaign. Hmm. I think we'll see a much more traditional approach to funding his campaign over the next six months. Yeah, and it also seemed like a lot of the traditional donors weren't necessarily jumping to throw money. You know, I think uh, politics and and those that are involved in politics tend to be pretty risk-averse. Um, if you have uh, an understanding of the way the direction of the country is going, a lot of people who are who are have a vested interest kind of want things to remain the same. And, and I think people are always worried about change. And I think for a lot of those donors that you allude to, Donald Trump represented something that they just couldn't figure out and probably still can't quite figure out. And for that reason, I think they have remained skeptical about what supporting a a candidate Donald Trump would actually mean, not knowing exactly his direction. Predictability is a big thing in politics, and uh, when we have candidates who who haven't served, uh, it it raises some questions about exactly what they would do if they were elected. Yeah. So right now we have Hillary Clinton doing what seems like a more traditional kind of financing, lots of uh, lots of fundraisers historically, putting the money, I guess, into the Democratic coffers. But a lot of that money, I guess, is being earmarked for Hillary, but maybe down the line as well. Uh, that's kind of one traditional, more traditional approach since at least 2010, I guess. Um, also, uh, and using super PACs, like she just had the super PAC come out with those ads against Donald Trump. Then you have the Bernie Sanders model, which is I, I raise my own. I, I have my own followers. My people were a movement kind of a thing. But the money's coming from his his followers. I mean, right there, not necessarily super packing, not getting big investment or these are all their phrases from uh, from New York and. Those New York values, as Donald Trump called it. And then Donald does it the self-funding way. That was all up in the primaries. What's, what's the ideal? I mean, if, if we could go design the system and make it be what's best for the people, the, the model that promotes more involvement of the, of the voters, what's the ideal? What would we want to create? Oh, I, you know, I think if I knew exactly what the ideal was, um, I, I, uh, I, I would be a lot more confident in, in the direction of the country. I think it's, it's unclear what the ideal is. However, I think the ingredients to an ideal system would be what we were talking about just earlier. Yeah, let's get to that. Uh, a system, yeah, a system that is, is designed to increase participation among the widest swath of the American public. And that involves uh, those with money giving. Uh, it, it involves those without money having uh, equal opportunities to be heard in politics uh, through their voting, through other ways of participating. Uh, I think that, that that's the ideal. Getting to that ideal is very difficult, given that we have a constitution that protects certain rights. And so much of the push and pull over the last 40 to 50 years has it been that between the tension between restricting political money on the one hand, worrying about 
too much influence of money, but at the same time, worrying about protecting people's political rights. And the Supreme Court has been arbitrating this in a series of cases since the 1970s, trying to find that right balance between allowing people to express their political right to support candidates through their voice and through their money, but also, on the other hand, not allowing a system to, um, to disenfranchise other voters who may not have money and may not be able to express themselves in that way. And the Supreme Court has been trying to resolve that over this time period. That's great. And, and that's isn't uh, that's one of the ideas. I mean, it sounds like what I hear from candidates is they want to see what they can do to overturn Citizens United decision, which I guess gave, uh, you know, uh, you tell me the donations to political parties is free speech. So you can't mess with the donation. Yeah, the, what, what the, the court has been wrestling with really since the Buckley versus the versus Vallejo case in the uh, mid-1970s has been this idea of, of uh, political donations as a form of political speech. And Citizens United and a series of other cases much more recently have in some ways uh, made, made that the law of the land. And, and it's placed very steep re- uh, restrictions on um, how much the government can regulate the amount of money that someone gives to uh, to support a candidate. Now, we, we limit how much you could give directly to a candidate, but as I mentioned earlier, we've made it easier to give money to support the candidate uh, uncoordinated. Now, so so the, the direction of the country has been we're going to allow people to give as much as they would like, which is why a lot of the political reforms have been focused on just simply increasing the number of people who participate, thinking that that getting more people to express that political right is a way to provide a much more democratic system. Hmm. And I guess that's that's the public funding. I mean, it seems like I mean, there are pre- in the presidential race, you can get you can get public funding. But then I guess it hinders you right from being able to to do other fundraising along with that. Yeah, it's not an unlimited source of money. And so whereas uh, uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, when the amount, total amount of money spent in, on presidential campaigns was, relatively speaking, somewhat less, public financing of presidential candidates was a viable way to run. Much more recently, over the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years, the total cost of running for president has increased. And as a result opting into the the match into the uh, public financing option has just not been a very good option which is why in recent elections uh, very few candidates have have uh, taken part in that because they realize it's going to cost them nearly a billion dollars to to run a viable campaign mm. and the, the the public program doesn't provide nearly enough and so i think uh, all candidates including bernie sanders has realized that Realize that it, you just can't you can't run a viable campaign and participate in that system. Right. Well, and two, I mean, do we really need to run for a year? Like this has been going on. I mean, it's more than a year, really. It's how long do we need? It seems like as the money has expanded, so too has the election season. I think you're right. Uh, campaigns in this country are. Uh, much longer than in in many uh, similar countries across the world, where they look to our country and are just uh, shocked at how long 
our, our campaigns are for national office. Uh, now, it seems hard to imagine that's going to change in the future, but it is a pretty remarkable feature of the way in which we choose our presidents, that it takes us nearly, uh, four, it's approaching four years, <laughs> nearly the day after the, the, our next president is chosen, will we start to talk about who's going to run in 2020. Uh, a, a nearly four-year campaign is, is, a, is a possibility once we uh, finish this campaign. We're in trouble. That is just, and plus, just the attention span of the people. No wonder they give up on thinking about it. I mean, a lot of people, it seems like, won't even get into this election um, until, you know, I don't know, August, September. <laughs> that Then yeah, then it seems like the people will start saying, oh, I guess we got to pay attention now. You know, and I think, I think the real uh, risk there has less to do with people paying uh, less attention to the presidential level. You know, if if we if we get a campaign started uh, four years early and and people simply don't pay attention, that's probably not not a not a great risk. The real risk to me is that people stop paying attention to the local races mm. because those are the races that continue. Yeah, um, those are the races that have the biggest impact on people's lives. And if what's going on at the national level has the effect of turning people off to politics in general, that's very harmful. Um, I think it's very harmful if somebody says, I'm so uh, frustrated with what's happening in our presidential election that I'm not even going to vote in a school board election or a city council election. That, to me, is, is a harm that, that we need to think very deeply about, because that's something that has immediate and direct impact on, on every resident of every community, every kid going to every school, if people tune out to those kinds of elections, the harm is, is really quite profound. Wow. Yeah. And is that the answer? I mean, I guess one other way to not be disenfranchised is to stay involved at the local level. I, I think you're right. I think that the, 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 at the local level, where a lot of the, the um, partisan conflict is, is much less significant, uh, where, where problem-solving uh, on a very um, basic level, is is really what what has to happen. Involvement there, where we're not talking about Democrats and Republicans nearly as much as you know, how is a, a specific school or a specific district going to solve the problem of educating the, the full array of students? That's where people can get involved and see the impact of their involvement, not not a, in abstract terms, but in very very practical terms. That's the kind of participation that I think this country has such a long history of. And, and if, if, if we could figure out ways to increase that, I think we would all be in much better shape. I do, too. And I think it would all float to the top eventually, right? We, we'd probably get hope. better candidates at every level. Yeah, you, you would hope. Yeah. Well, we appreciate it. Dr. Heath Brown, thank you for your great work and uh, your book, Pay to Play Politics, How Money Defines the American Democracy. Thanks for being with us. It's absolutely my pleasure. Great insight. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and uh, continue the discussion. Stick with us, helping you uh, learn how to lead. And money, by the way, apparently is part of the leadership game, at least in politics. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. 
Man, the civic duty, it's oh, its hard, isn't it? And we get all of the attention at this presidential level. Everyone's focused there, except Dr. Heath Brown made a great point. What about your board of education? Do you even know who's on your board, at, of the, your board of education of your state? Or how about just your, do you know who is the PTA president of your child's school? And why aren't you the president? I got to work, man. I'm telling you, got to get, got to get involved. Got to get involved. Let me give you a little more advice of what not to do um, with the presidency. If you're going to rob, if you're going to like rob someone, do not try to hop the White House fence when you're running away from a robbery. Apparently, this guy, uh, according to Secret Service spokesman Robert Hoback, said um, the White House was locked down briefly last week after a man jumped the fence alongside the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, a White House facility where presidential staffers work. And uh, the investigation suggested that the man was fleeing from a robbery just across the street and tried to make his tried to make his getaway by hopping the White House fence. Missed it by that much. (laughs) Secret Service officers quickly detained the man who hasn't been identified publicly, uh, but not before he suffered a cut to his finger. He's lucky he didn't get tased. Tase it. Or worse, like have them sick the dog on him. That'd be horrible. Get him, Jimmy. (sighs) Or set the drones on him. Yeah. Don't mess with Barry and his drones. Don't mess with the drone, man. <laughs> Watch out for the drones, Barry. You calling him Barry? Oh, I always call him Barry. You're going to get in trouble. And I'm pretty sure, Donald, we're going to research it. Pretty sure Donald Trump shouldn't be signing currency. He shouldn't put his autograph on a $5 bill, especially when Secret Service are standing right there. It would be funny if he got arrested for that. Wouldn't that be funny? They throw him on the car, cuff him. What's this all about? (laughs) You're making a big mistake. Don't you dare sign the money. We'll take a break, folks. Uh, We'll come back. More tools for you. More information to help you live longer and love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Top of the morning to you. It's Thursday. It's that day that, you know, you can see the light and you're killing it still. Great to have you here. This is the show where we try to give you the information you need, plus some that you really don't need. But it's just fun to let you know. We're really good at that category. That's probably where we excel. Many say we're gifted there. We are so gifted in the information you don't always need to know. But you you need to know all of this, as my computer just totally 
collapsed. Oh, my heck. Did you see how excited Ben got right there? Yeah. Disappointed. This is why we need live stream because you could have seen for the first time, I think in about seven months, Hmm. some serious emotion out of Ben. Wow. He raised his arms. Good job, Ben. I'm I'm really trying to move up. Hmm. So making steps. That's what my therapist told me to do. Really? Yeah. Doing what you can there? To just. Yeah. Just express how I feel. That's great. Wow. So uh, we will get to that today. Not to Ben expressing how he feels. We'll probably try to avoid that today. But we will get to uh, our one of our guests is going to be talking about, you know, if you're so smart, why aren't you happy? Do, do smarts correlate to happiness? I'm going to go with no. Sugar totally correlates to happiness. Does a lack of smarts correlate to happiness? It probably inversely it inversely seems, it seems like uh if if you have a lack of smarts it would it would correlate to not happy hmm or is ignorance bliss guess it depends who you know yeah <laughs> we'll get to that uh interesting topic coming up um we got it we got life's hard happiness is easier than any of us make it yeah, a lot of a lot of the problems I see people have in life tend to be self-inflicted. Yeah. Choices they've made, decisions. Yeah, people you married, career choices. Yeah, you've made, or you know, should I take? Should I? Should I have another Twinkie? That's a choice. Well, there's a lot to. Are you a nice person? Because if you're, you know, the kind of if you're. If you're negative to people, if you have a bad attitude, if you say overdose on Twinkies, those may mm-hmm. those may be bad decisions that lead to bad things down the road. But if you're a nice person, if you're cordial to people, if you try to be the the team player type guy, that yeah. tends to be a more positive route through life. Did you do you want to hear an example of that? Please. Do you remember um, Senator Bob Bennett? I do. Just passed away. Well, a great senator. Lost to the Tea Party movement out of Utah, and then Mike Lee mm-hmm. went to DC and said no. To, yeah, and by the way, a lot. yeah, and um, Mike <laughs> Lee is really good friends with Ted Cruz. Yeah. Anyway, so did you hear the story that on Bob Bennett's deathbed, he just had had he already had cancer. He was being treated for cancer in a hospital in like Maryland, mm-hmm. and then had a stroke. Which pretty much ensured that he's not going to make it, I guess. And it, it really put him out. But he was in his bed and he turned to his wife and son and asked if anybody – if there were any Muslims in the hospital. And they're like, why? And he said, because I want to go apologize to them for what Donald Trump is saying. On behalf of the Republican Party. Super cool. So he, here's a dying man, and he says, "I want this is wrong. I'm going to correct a wrong." And on his deathbed, he wanted to go apologize for the GOP. That's cool. Who does that? Yeah, that, that, those are the kind of men we need there. At that point, you might be a little concerned about your current situation. Yeah, but it's got to be weird the minute your father, sick father, saying, "Are there any Muslims in this place?" Right. <laughs> You're like, "Oh, geez, Dad." 
But he didn't. He's totally just trying to go honor that. That uh, I just think that's really cool. So anyway, we'll be talking about your happiness and your smarts coming up in a few minutes. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry. Thanks, Matt. Today in things you probably wouldn't have said in the presence of a reporter is this little nugget from the Washington Post about Donald Trump's appeal to suburban voters in Pennsylvania. Will Trump have some appeal to working-class Democrats in Levittown or Bristol? Sure, says Ed Rendell, the former Pennsylvania governor who won in landslide uh, landslides in the suburbs. For everyone, he'll lose one and a half, two Republican women. Trump's comments like, you can't be a 10... Uh, the the comments about uh, Carly Fiorina, what's wrong with her face, that kind of thing, and comments about that. He goes, those are going to haunt him. There are probably more ugly women in America than attractive women. People take that stuff personally. Yeah. That's probably not something you want to yeah. say. It's kind of offensive. A reporter. <laughs> I don't know. It might offend people. That made me laugh. Uh, moving on. When it came to the presidential race and the future of the Democratic Party, Vice President Joe Biden just wants people to take a deep breath and relax. While in Ohio on Wednesday, Biden told reporters that despite the chaotic Nevada Democratic Convention over the weekend and the strife that followed it, there are no fundamental split in the Democratic Party. He added that he is confident that Bernie Sanders will be supportive of Hillary Clinton, which uh, if, if she wins, which the numbers indicate will happen. So I'm not worried. There's no split. There's no. He's he's a sherry. Joe Biden, Uncle Joe's in there. There's a split. Democrats are good. There's no split. They're they're rioting in <laughs> Vegas. In Nevada. In Nevada. We'll see what happens. Congress can't even come close to agreeing on how much money to allocate to the Zika virus. The House on Wednesday night passed a bill that would provide $622 million in funding, but that's way below the $1.1 billion measure that the Senate and even further below the $1.9 billion requested by President Obama. The White House has dismissed the House bill as a dumb approach and threatened to veto. Do you think that's going to go over well? No. You just called what the House did dumb. No. Instead of an incorrect approach or a bad Yeah, less effective. Dumb approach and like official. Here we go. That's not going to go well. Hide the kids. So, the NBC reports that even getting a bill into the, onto the president's desk is a long way off, given the huge difference between the House and Senate measures. One of the more controversial elements in, the, in play is the House Republicans want to pull unspent money from the Ebola crisis. This is from the USA Today. When, and the, this quote's funny. When a tornado strikes, we don't steal money from the unfinished relief efforts for the last hurricane, says, a, says Democrat Nita Lowry. Right, so now we want to take money from the uh, that was supposed to be helping with Ebola and yeah. put that towards Zika. Yeah, it's not like you go, okay, this hurricane just finished. There's a tornado. Let's take money and put it over here. Right, right. Yeah, it's government. Yeah, government. Government's government. good. A, uh, China intercepted a U.S. spy plane over the South China Sea. They sent some fighters out and. Uh, they uh, they came uh, says the fighter jets flew approximately fifty feet away from the U.S. aircraft, wow. and the U.S. Pacific Command is investigating. But they were just they were probably just sightseeing. A lot of tensions in that area of the world. Yeah, who owns that sea anyway? And now to probably some of the most important news we'll learn today. What? What? How to date a woman who is out of your league? Oh, Ben, 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 listen. This dude. is for Ben. Listen up, Ben. Listen it says up. Uh, there aren't many a woman that are out of my league. Well, yeah, you're not actually in a league. So what they're what they're saying is, a couple of average-looking people might start dating right away after meeting at a party. 
Okay. Right? They might go, oh, yeah, two yeah average, no problem. Two it averages. says, but a regular Joe and a total bombshell may need a few months of friendship before they decide to give romance a shot. Before the before the bombshell will give yeah, she the needs, regular Joe a shot. The Joe may need to kind of prove yeah. himself a little bit. Well, yeah, bit. maybe use some humor, some show that they have earning capacity, you, hygiene. It says playing the long game allows for other factors like your killer charm and stellar personality to shine through yeah. to alter someone's initial superficial judgments of you, says the study co-author Lucy Hunt of uh, University of Texas. This is good. So it might take two months to kind of just overcome the initial repulsion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this isn't for Ben, but. I mean, specifically for Ben. Did she know Ben? I don't know. It doesn't say Ben in the study. Does it but say repulsion? No. Yeah. I just kind of tossed it's it. It's just yeah. kind of – that's just the gut feeling. Like, yeah. Ugh, See, yeah. what I lack with um, attractiveness, mm. Here I we go. add with ice mm-hmm. cream, right? Yeah. I, I smell like you, ice cream. Yeah. Mm. You, you, wow. Is that you that smells like vanilla? Yeah. yeah. Do you wear that as a cologne? Well, I, I rub the, the used vanilla bean. No, I've noticed that. Yeah. But that just leaves brown marks. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Like behind your ear. The study goes on. It says, the more you get to know her, the more she'll like you until you actually do become more attractive in her eyes. And so you become, it's like the friend. You, you're, you become such a good friend that you're more attractive to her. So the fastest route to the friend zone is putting yourself in her orbit, says couples therapist Melissa Schneider. Kayaking with your buddies this weekend or you might want to save a spot for her on the boat. On your kayak. Just come on over here. We've got a spot right here for hey, you. Hey, i got a free seat in my kayak. Then you get to talk <laughs> okay, to her, right? i Jimmy. i got a kayak seat right here if anybody wants it. I'll do it, Larry. And then it says, in the meantime, keep playing the field. You don't want to tie yourself down waiting on a relationship that may never develop. And according to the study, if it's been more than 17 months and the mutual attraction hasn't quite kicked up, it might be time to move on. Okay, no, what, Ben? Listen to this. Say it again. Say it again. So which one? It's been more than than 17 months. So what's the margin there? Is it like give or take five months? Give or take a decade? Give or take another year? This is kind of a difficult ground to maneuver because you're looking at like restraining orders, right? You know, you, the, uh, you go you go from being we're that friends. you go from being that kind of you know we're a friend okay or then it's kind of annoying and then then there's like a court order and that's where you need to be careful yeah so Ben let me teach you a secret that I learned back in Vietnam I don't know why we're having this conversation um, <laughs> if this is interesting information you well, can learn okay so you know how you have this friend yes that you've been developing kind of, you've love been, interest you, yeah. developing love interest you've been circling her orbit. I, think I, I haven't entered the orbit. No, like, been, like you, but you're like, like you're yeah. like nearing. Well, yeah, you've just been circling, um, playing the field, playing the field, or so so to speak. And it's gone what six years now, six seven. Yeah, six and a half. Okay, let me just give you a little secret here. Um, Mrs. Fields is married. She can't have she can't date you you're 30 or 40 years younger than her yeah she's not available and even though her cookies would pair well with your ice cream yeah that's that's the thing he's had this dream that if i could just if mrs fields and i could just get married she looks so young she she does she and she especially did when they took that picture she looked wonderful now you need to let her go you need to let her go i'm not sure i can do that and you can't really base everything I, off of trying to build an ice cream empire. Yeah. 
Well, I've I you just have, to have in, other motivations. I've invested for this. so much time into. I understand. This. You know I what understand. I would try to do before you build an ice cream empire? Just try to build an ice cream. Then we'll see if we can get it to an empire. That could work. Just one flavor. You just want ice cream, don't you? Yeah. I've only like tried to hint. Didn't didn't you import an ice cream machine? Have you done that yet? You were looking at one. Oh online. yeah, but um, <laughs> a used machine from China. <laughs> not used, but okay. I not, found not out necessarily that new. The the chance that it would be kept at port oh. because <laughs> it was illegal was a little bit too high. Oh. Well, that well, smart. That was smart. That was smart thinking. There are ways. Yeah, it's just the amount of time and effort. Like I. I guess this could parallel with me and Mrs. Fields. Yeah, you got to let her go. Like, let yeah. her go. The amount of time. It's Pretty sure taken. she's married to Mr. Fields. Mr. Fields might have questions. Is the that le- what Mrs. means? The the lesser known Mr. Fields. Yeah, <laughs> he owns like a peanut production plant. <laughs> I just feel bad because every time I just I keep hearing that you you keep going and finding Mrs. Fields stuff paraphernalia everywhere and and really the police are tired of it. So. So there you go. That was great. Great information. So, again, if, it, so, if you've to, chased her more than 17 months and you're not getting anything back, it's time to move on. But obviously there's a margin of three to four years, right? Well, it's like 17 months. Yeah. They said if you've tried and you're still in the friend zone, time to move on. Let her go. Let her go. Let her go. Stay friends, but... Well, I mean, he doesn't even know her. He's never met her. Well, become friends. That would be your first step. Well, first, get rid of the restraining order. So really, I haven't even started. You know what? Um, yeah, just go for it. Good luck with that. We are sending a watch out, though, to Mrs. Fields. Is Mrs. Is Mrs. Fields even a real person? Yeah. Okay, just making sure before I start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, she's not. She's an illusion. She was just, she's a marketing ploy. Not a real human. Except she is. But probably not interested. We will uh, come right back, folks. When we come back, does uh, having brains improve your happiness? Does it help or hinder? What do you think? We'll be talking to uh, an expert who wrote the book on it, for heaven's sakes. Interesting uh, discussion coming up. Stick with us. Smarts and happiness. Do they go together? We'll let you know. We'll be right back. Friends, you happy people, you, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, everyone knows success and happiness are linked, right? The more successful you are in a career, the happier you are. Do you believe that? Actually, the idea of career success at any cost is resulting in more and more people being dissatisfied or unhappy with their life. And here to discuss this concept of uh, happiness and your smarts, is uh, who who better to teach us this than our than the professor uh, who wrote the book on it, Doctor Raj Ragunathan is joining us. He is a University of Texas business professor and uh, the author of the book. Uh, if you're so smart, why aren't you happy, Doctor Ragunathan? Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you 
so much. Great to have you here. Now, help me understand this, uh, Dr. Ragunathan. Why do we think, um, you know, success, money equals happy? Because it seems like that's been discredited for, for a few years now. Yeah, so it's not as if the uh, there is no relationship between money and happiness. Uh, there is a positive relationship, but the relationship is much, much smaller than most people expect it to be. Um, and yes, it is true that uh, we have known this for some time, but I think one of the big reasons why we continue to think that money is going to bring us happiness is because that's what we experience in the short term. You know, imagine that you're earning $100,000 a year and you get a big bump. You get like $20,000 extra. When you hear that news, you actually feel very happy hmm. and you mispredict how long it's going to last. That's the problem. You think that it's going to last forever. It turns out that it maybe lasts for two months, at most maybe three months, four months. And then you get adapted to that new level of wealth. And it is true that when your basic necessities are not met, you're struggling for food, clothing, shelter, more money can help. So there is a positive relationship between money and happiness before that limit of about 75000 dollars in the u.s for a household but wow. beyond it it turns out it doesn't really matter much that's an interesting point huh that um we, we actually get used to things that happen to us fairly quickly so uh the effect doesn't seem to last as long is that true with negative things so if something if i if i lost 20 percent, would i adapt to that pretty quickly as well or would i constantly be mad about that yeah so um the uh, n- negative effect of uh, something that's a loss uh, tends to be more intense in the short term. So, for example, you would feel less positive or less pleasure from gaining uh, a 20% hike in your salary than you would feel pain from a 20% reduction in salary. But you're going to adapt to that as well. There was actually a new paper that was interesting. It, It kind of pointed to some individual differences on tendencies to adapt. It turns out that the more conscientious you are, um, this is a personality trait, uh, the more you're going to get affected by these increases and reductions in salary. But by and large, people adapt to both positive and negative things. Interesting stuff. And so in your book, um, we might be, I guess, it seems like the premise of the book is we we might be mis, uh, be misinformed or, or overestimating the value of of our our progress at work. Uh, as in that we expect it to bring a lot of happiness, but it yeah, doesn't. and it doesn't do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not just wealth. Uh, you pointed to wealth, but uh, other kinds of things as well, like fame, for example. We get used to that. We might get used to status. Uh, we might used to get. Uh, we might get used to the amount of control that we have, and so on. So it turns out that all of these, what might we call extrinsic yardsticks of success, you know, these are the yardsticks that conventionally uh, we use to assess whether somebody's arrived, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. somebody's, like, successful, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, he must be making a lot of money, or he must be owning a big home, or he must be high uh, up in his organization, and so on. Um, it turns out that we get used to all of these extrinsic yardsticks relatively quickly, um, and therefore they stop uh, giving you sustained levels of happiness. They might boost your happiness levels in the short run, but in the long run. Now, why, Raj, why did you end up studying this? You're a business professor and not a psychologist. And, you know, there's, there seems to be a lot of books coming out today uh, in kind of, I guess, in the happiness category. Um, but you, you're, you're, a, you know, you're an aggressive, uh, data-oriented business professor. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How, how did you start studying this? 
Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the short answer to that is that I've always been interested in happiness for a very long time, and I just ended up being in the business world for a variety of reasons. Uh, but uh, the more kind of, you know, the, the uh, you might call it a milestone change in my life that prompted me to start teaching a class on happiness and researching it a little more uh, intensely was um, something that happened in 2006 and 2007 when I took a bunch of MBAs from the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin, which is where I teach, to India, uh, on a business trip, you know, to get to, uh, get them um, familiar with the Indian way of doing business and so on. And I met a lot of my batchmates from 15 years back. Hmm. I have an MBA from India, and it had been 15 years since we had graduated. And I met a lot of my batchmates, and I noticed this very interesting uh, phenomenon, which is a lack of, seeming lack of correlation between career success and what I call life success. You know, how happy you are, how fulfilled you are, how meaningful your life seems to be. And I, I was also going through a lean patch myself. You know, I achieved quite a bit. On paper, it looked like, you know, I might be considered a very successful guy. I had a PhD from a big, you know, great university, NYU. I was a professor at a top-ranked school and so on. But yet, if I looked within, I felt a sense of emptiness. I felt a sense of, is this all there is to it? You know, I didn't feel that I was waking up every day with a great deal of enthusiasm to go to work and, you know, feeling really pumped and energized and joyous. Uh, you know, so another way to look at it is I was and my friends were in the top 1% in terms of material possessions and access to resources. Uh, but I don't think we, are, we were anywhere near the top 1% in terms of how hmm. meaningful, fulfilling and happy we were. And I thought that this was kind of a interesting and at the same time somewhat disturbing and unfortunate uh, paradox, if you will. And I, I, so I thought, okay, you know, at a university, what is my primary job? You know, I asked myself this question, and the answer came to me that it was to give the students the skill sets and tools required to lead a fulfilling, meaningful life and uh, enable other people to do the same. And uh, if I were, was honest with myself, all the courses that I was teaching, all the stuff that I was doing, I felt that weren't really geared towards fulfilling that objective. Yeah. And so I ended up asking the students, would you guys be interested in a course on this fundamental and important question, one of life's big questions, what are the determinants of a happy and fulfilling life? And all of them said yes. So I came back home to Austin and I put together a syllabus. And, you know, it's really fortunate and, and really, you know, uh, hats off to, to the school and the dean for approving a course like this, a very unusual course, yeah. as you pointed out. But, you know, it's gone from strength to strength. Uh, over the years, I've had the waiting list only increase. And uh, then a Coursera course on the topic came up, and now it has over 125,000 students from everywhere in the world, every, literally every country in the world. And it was rated the top um, um, MOOC. It's called Massive yeah, Open MOOC. Online Course. Yeah. yeah so it's, is it really? It's the top-rated MOOC? Of 2015, according to Holy this cool. uh, third party called Class Central. So these, this hunger for ho happiness is not, yeah. not isolated. You know, it's not only among the MBAs or the smart and the successful. Everybody is very interested in the topic. I love that story. And, the, I mean, again, uh, that was your cohort from your graduate programs. Um, and, and here you are at University of Texas. You don't want these guys to get together or gals to get together in a few years, 15 years from now feeling underwhelmed and hungry for some purpose. Mm -hmm. Indeed, yeah. So that was the motivation behind it is to uh, at least, you know, sow a seed of uh, this kind of thinking in their head so that when they arrive at that point in the mid-40s or whatever and look back and ask themselves, you know, is this all there is to it? They at least remember that, you know what, I had a course on this topic and there was a bunch of resources that the course pointed to. Let me look them up again. You yeah. know? So that's the intent. Yeah. Incredible. Um, and talk to us about um, 
one of the things I know you mention a lot is the mental chatter. Mm-hmm. And right. help me understand that. And, and does, I guess is that just us being overwhelmed by these in, these extrinsic factors? What what is mental chatter? Yeah. So mental chatter is uh, the kind of voice in the back of your head, and uh, most of us are familiar with that voice. It's a voice that's going in the background, commenting on how we are doing something. You know, it might say things like Raj, you know, you're really doing well now, or Raj, you really kind of blew it, and so on. And this is the judgmental voice, the criticizing voice. It's also the voice that kind of taps into our emotional tenor for the day or for the moment. Um, and uh, that's quite different from this mental chatter is quite different from what we consciously tend to think about. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, people who do research in this area call um, uh, the part of the brain that is associated with mental chatter the default mode network or a DMN. This is the part of the brain that's producing... Uh, thoughts uh, kind of spontaneously by default. And uh, that mental chatter, uh, what my colleagues and I discovered, uh, gives you a very good insight into uh, how happy you are, how meaningful and fulfilling you find life to be. And most of the time, we don't really pay that much attention to the mental chatter. It's kind of going on in the background, almost on the edge of consciousness and what we're conscious of and what we're not conscious of. Uh, And the task in this exercise, the mental chatter exercise, is to actually try and tune in to that mental chatter. Hmm. And uh, one of the best ways to tune into it is to actually try and not think. You know, just kind of sit there and then just observe whatever is going on without trying to think. And then all this mental chatter will bubble up and you can pay attention to it. And uh, the task in the exercise is to actually write it down. And when we did that, what happened is we found that, first of all, most people's mental chatter is more negative than positive. And we looked mostly at people who were pretty successful. You know, being from a business school, we looked at the students, the MBA students, the undergrads. We also looked at a lot of people who worked in big firms like, you know, Whole Foods and uh, some other firms like that. Uh, And we found that, first of all, most of people's mental chatter is quite negative. And the second thing that we found, which is actually more interesting to me, um, is that um, the mental chatter seemed to emerge from three basic buckets or three categories. Uh, One of the categories had to do with um, how superior I feel to other people or how inferior I feel to other people. And it seems like a lot of our thoughts are about how do we stack up compared to other people. And most of the time, we tend to think that we're not doing as well as we would hope. Even if we are doing quite well and we are better than other people, we want to be even more superior to them. Hmm. Um, So that's the reason for the negativity in that context. Uh, Then the second bucket is uh, about love and relationships. You know, I'm already growing old. I don't have a partner. You know, I don't have a a child. You know, I'm never going to ever, you know, settle down in terms of my personal life and so on. So that's the second big category. And the third big category has to do with control, has to do with how frenetic your life is, how out of control your life is, how many more things you have on your, you know, list of things to do than you can ever complete and uh, how life seems so short and uh, you're out of time and out of breath and uh, that category of uh, thoughts. So uh, that gives us insights into why we aren't feeling as happy and fulfilled as we could or should be despite our achievements is because we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people in terms of superiority. We aren't satisfied with our relationships and we have just taken on much, much more. Uh, We have bitten off more than we can chew. Hmm. We've taken on more on our plate than we can handle. And these three insights then uh, give you kind of a a kind of at least a platform for understanding, okay, how can you now steer the ship in the right direction? How can you correct for this set of mistakes that you've made uh, that have contributed to your life being unhappy? Uh, And that's that's the idea. Wow. And that seems like a powerful way too to just identify when you are in your chatter 
is the mm-hmm. minute the minute you're comparing yourself in you know hierarchy superiority in or you know bemoaning your relationships or uh, worried about lack of control, you're probably chattering. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of chatter going. That's amazing. That's pretty neat. I mean, it's funny because we kind of know those categories naturally. I mean, it, it felt like you were just explaining my morning drive to work. <laughs> as I'm wondering you, where you I fit. You sound like a happy guy to me, though. I am, but it's a lot of it's just caffeine. Um, uh. <laughs> well, let's take a let's take a break, Raj. This is fascinating to me, and I think for our listeners, we'll come back and continue the discussion um, more with uh, Raj Ragunatan when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you understand uh, yourself, your, your, your guide and your path to happiness, folks. It's inside you. You've got this light that'll take you there. You just got to maybe turn off the chatter, focus in a bit, maybe get to the intrinsic motivators. Stick with us. More when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is uh, Dr. Raj uh, Ruganathan, and he is, he really, he's the number one online MOOC, if you've ever heard of a MOOC, it's it's an online training, um, rated number one in 2015. His class that he teaches at the University of Texas is is the number one class, folks. They, people, they want to learn how to how to be happy. And uh, Dr. Ragunathan is an award-winning professor of marketing at the McCombs School of Business at the University of Texas, Austin. And uh, he's also the author of the book, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? Which is a pretty good question. Dr. Ragunathan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thanks Te- for inviting me back. Yeah. Teach us um, more about some of the principles that that uh, need to take place for us to find happiness amidst all of the, you know, the stress of work and the need to deliver? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, one way to kind of rephrase what you just asked, Matt, is to ask this question. So what are the determinants of a happy and fulfilling life? And if you look at that question and if you look at the major themes that emerge from uh, the 15, 20 years of research that's gone into it, and it seems like five things are very important. The very first thing is that your basic necessities have to be met. You can't be struggling for your next meal and yet be happy, right? Just to get out of unhappiness and into a state of neutrality. In fact, even to entertain this question, what does it take to lead a happy life? You need to have your basic necessities met. Now, I'm going to assume that many of your listeners are past that stage, yeah. right? Uh, that they have enough money to, to make ends meet and they live in a relatively warm house and, and you know, the creature comforts are taken care of. Beyond it, three things seem to emerge. Uh, one is a need for mastery, being really good at doing something. The second is a need for belonging, um, to have at least one really intimate relationship. And the third is a need for autonomy, to feel that you're not under somebody else's power, that you're not a puppet in somebody else's hands. So these three needs, you know, I call them MBA, Mastery, Belonging, Autonomy. Huh. I'm from a business school. Of course, it's all yeah. going to be an It's MBA, always right? about the MBA, isn't it, Raj? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but here the MBA is slightly different, right? I mean, it's not a master's in business administration. It's mastery, belonging, and autonomy. Now, if you understand this, you can also kind of understand why it is that we have these three categories of mental chatter. We have mental chatter about superiority because 
we want to be a master of something that we do. And one of the kind of ways that um, we can gauge whether we are progressing towards mastery is by comparing ourselves to other people and assessing whether we are doing better than other people. If we are, then we feel that, yeah, we must be progressing towards mastery because we are better at running the 100 meters race uh, compared to, let's say, you know, our neighbor or Usain Bolt, right? I mean, he's the best in the world. Um, So he's a master at that, right? Uh, Because he's the best. Um, uh, Likewise, belonging, you know, the reason why a lot of our mental chatter is about intimacy and relationships is because we want this belonging. And therefore, we kind of constantly worry about whether other people love us enough, whether we have, we get enough attention from other people, whether we have enough Facebook likes and so on and so forth. And likewise, uh, the reason why we worry a lot about whether our life is in, under control is because we have this desire for autonomy. We want to be free. We want to not be obligated or pressured by life to do things that we don't want to do. Um, that's why we worry a lot about um, biting off more than we can chew and life being out of control. Hmm. Now, if you understand this, and then uh, you can ask yourself this question, so we have all these needs, uh, MBA, and we can't be happy unless we have those things, but am I approaching it the right way? So is there another way to uh, achieve mastery or, or progress towards mastery that does not involve social comparisons? And it turns out there is. That's a more productive way, not just to be happy, but actually even to be successful in the long run. In a way, it's kind of a best-kept secret. Uh, and that way is to follow your passion and to follow what um, this researcher, Mihai Sheikhs and Mihai calls flow states. I love flow it. Flow states are those yeah. states in which you get so absorbed in an activity that you completely lose track of time. You lose track of, um, you know, you merge with the activity and you're no longer self-conscious about how you're doing. And the mental chatter actually stops because you're completely into the activity, right? Uh, and it turns out most of us at one point or the other have experienced flow. I'm sure you get into flow in doing your job as yeah. a viewer, right? Um, yeah. As a radio talk host. And likewise, everybody's got some domain in which they find flow. Uh, the unfortunate thing is we get distracted from it because, you know, other people tell us that, you know, that's not a worthy pursuit. You know, you can't be making mannequins for a living, even if you get into flow. I mean, that's not going to give you money. Right. You better become uh, an investment banker or a consultant or a movie producer or whatever, you know. So we get distracted away from our flow-inducing activities to other things. But pursuing flow not just makes us happy, but is also really the only reliable means of mastery. Pursuing superiority over other people might in the short run um, motivate you to uh, start a task and uh, put in a lot of effort into that task. But in the long run, it's actually going to burn you out and you're not going to end up being a master of that domain uh, as much as you're likely to be if you pursue your flow. That is interesting. See, what you're doing, though, it's so interesting, Raj, just as uh, somebody that's been following all of these thought leaders. I mean – you're you're tying into some of the most incredibly basic theories and um, bringing it, you know, to the average, you know, business. I mean, really now everybody, but you were at first teaching business students. Mm -hmm. It's powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. Um, That that is what I'm doing. I'm not kind of reinventing the wheel. No, but it's it's also brilliant. Yeah. It's yeah. cool. So, uh, I, by the way, Matt, I can continue on with the other. No, do please. Yeah, go ahead. We make. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, belonging. Uh, you know, we kind of want to be the center of attention and be loved, etc. But if we just turn it around and ask ourselves this question, you know, there must be a lot of people who need love. And how about I serve them rather than looking at it from my 
self-centered perspective. So you become the provider of love. And when you do that, you automatically enhance your chances of forging these intimate, deep, meaningful relationships by serving other people. Uh, and that's a much better way to be happy because when you serve other people, the story you're telling yourself internally is that, you know what, my cup of intimacy is full, which is what is enabling me to afford the luxury of actually turning it around and asking myself, can I serve other people? And I feel like a queen, king or a queen when I serve others rather than like a beggar when I need others to serve me and love me. So it's hmm. a very powerful story to tell yourself from the point of view of happiness um, to serve other, other people. And uh, finally, uh, with regard to control and autonomy, um, if you stop asking yourself, uh, am I enough sufficiently in control of other people and over outcomes that I want and about life in general, and ask yourself this question, am I in control of my feelings and thoughts, right? So you start taking what I call internal control, um, and that's a very important milestone in any serious happiness seeker's um, path is that you arrive at this milestone at one point or the other where you tell yourself that, look, I mean, I've been seeking for happiness outside of me all along, thinking that I, if only I get dash, fill in the blanks, I'm going to be happy. And then I've discovered over and over and over again that whatever happens, you know, the, the dash, whatever is in the dash, it gets fulfilled. Yeah, I am happy, but only for a while. I can't sustain it. Uh, and so you finally arrive at this wisdom that happiness doesn't lie in, you know, fill in this blanks, uh, fill in the blank. Um, it lies in my taking kind of personal responsibility for my own happiness, mm. taking this internal control. And so you end up practicing uh, those strategies that enable you to uh, maintain a sense of internal equanimity uh, regardless of what happens outside of you. So you can be happy, you can be peaceful, you can be calm, even if others around you, even important people in your life, you know, your spouse or your boss, uh, are toxic. Uh, you can be happy regardless of um, whatever outcomes you're handed. Now, granted, this is going to take a lot of time and practice, but we have lots of examples of people who've done this, you know, like Mahatma Gandhi or Nelson Mandela, um, who actually were happy, peaceful, tranquil, despite being in extremely harsh uh, external circumstances. And so that's the idea, is that instead of pursuing mastery through superiority, instead of pursuing belonging through needing to be loved, instead of pursuing autonomy through being in control of external circumstances, you pursue them through pursuing a flow, pursuing the need to love and give, and pursuing internal autonomy. So I know that I've given you a oh, lot of information here in a very short time, Yeah, um, but hopefully it makes some sense. No, I think, I think it really does. And um, Raj, as, you, as you're kind of wrapping it up, you started, too, talking about five determinants, one of which was basic necessities. Mm-hmm. Um, what, was, what were the other ones? Yeah, so the other three are MBA, Mastery, Belonging, okay. Autonomy. That's three the of the – okay. One, yeah, what's the last yeah, one? Yeah, so it's so a basic necessities and then MBA. Uh, the very last one is actually perhaps the most important one, which is the attitude you bring to the pursuit of MBA and life in general. You know, And I characterize this attitude as either coming in the form of what I call an abundance mindset. Hmm. That is that you feel that, you know, I have enough. My life is generally good. I'm taken care of. Um, or a scarcity mindset, which is that I don't have enough. Life is a zero-sum game, and my win is going to come at somebody else's loss, and I better hold and grab. Um, and so depending on the, which mindset you adopt, it makes a big difference to how you pursue M, B, and A. If you're approaching those three goals from the abundance mindset, you're going to be willing to 
pursue mastery through enjoyment and flow and what you like to do. You're going to be willing to pursue belonging through needing to love because you feel that your life is already abundant. You're going to be willing to take internal control. If you approach them through the scarcity mindset, you're going to approach mastery through wanting to beat other people, wanting to be superior to them. You're going to approach belonging through wanting to be loved. And you're going to approach autonomy through resting control over other people and over outcomes. Mm. You're going to be desperate for control. Raj, in in about one minute, tell me if there's one thing – I always call it the one thing – the one thing that the Mm -hmm. the listener can do today, right now, that would have the Mm -hmm. biggest impact other than, of course, buying your book. um, (laughs) What is the one thing that makes the biggest difference right now to get started on? Okay. Yeah. So the one thing that I would say is that if you can somehow – get into the habit of taking just a couple of minutes every night before you go to bed to note three good things that happened to you that day. Um, just little good things, you know. It might be things like, you know what, I forgot to rain my plants, uh, water my plants today, but it was raining, and therefore I got some free water, right? Or a stranger smiled at me. Um, it can be little good things like that, not necessarily that you got a big raise or, you know, uh, you won the lottery. Um, if you can just make a note of small, three small good things that happen every day, it's going to steer you in the direction of abundance. Um, so because I really like you and your listeners, uh, I'm also going to give you a bonus one. Sweet. Yeah, I? yeah please. That's another thing. Yeah. yeah, if you can just make sure that you lead a life in which you maintain a healthy lifestyle, you know, eat well, sleep at least seven hours a day, and move a little bit more uh, if you're sedentary, uh, if you have a sedentary job, um, move a little bit more than you uh, normally would. You know, if you just, you know, there's a really great book called Eat, Move, Sleep by yeah. Tom Rath. Yeah. Um, so if you just do a little bit of each of these and you maintain a healthy lifestyle, you're going to see that your life kind of is a little more enjoyable from the inside out. You feel like each of your cells is, is a little more joyous and healthy and bubbling with energy. And uh, that combined with the three good things is going to almost certainly put you on the right path. And oh. if it doesn't, Write to me. I'll give you a free copy of my book. <laughs> I think it'll work. I think it'll work. Dr. Raj Ragunathan, thank you again so much for your great work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Matt. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. You too. And honored to, uh, honored to learn from you. Dr. Raj Ragunathan, again, uh, remember, you, you can find him if you go to happysmarts.com. His book, If You're Smart, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? Um, and again, go look up uh, his University of Texas Um, online MOOC. Uh, It's the number one MOOC in 2015. Pretty cool stuff. And what a great uh, spirit that Raj brings to his work. Honestly, how good would it feel to just to not have to be so comparative, to not have to constantly be wondering where you are in your mastery, your superiority, and your love in your relationships, your ability to control. That's where the peace comes from, when you can just be centered. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue the discussion. In just a few seconds. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Love a good guest. You just can't beat it. Three buckets that we're constantly chasing down and uh, trying to master. And you think about it, we don't, we just do it naturally, right? But a lot of our mental chatter is your head trying to justify or compare or, you know, correct you to get back on the path where you're less 
us, you know, out of sync. Speaking of out of sync, um, a 12-year-old Western New York girl wound up running 10 extra miles after she got into the wrong road race. Oh, come on! I know. Lee Adianez Adianez Rodriguez had registered for a 5K race that was part of last Saturday's Rochester Regional Health Flower City Challenge. She thought she was arriving late at the starting line when the race started, so she began running with the rest of the runners. It turned out that she was actually running with the half-marathoners on the 13.1-mile course and not on the 5K-mile or 3.1-mile course. Rodriguez says she realized about halfway through that she was in the wrong race but decided to finish. She completed the half-marathon in 2 hours, 43 minutes, 31 seconds. How cool is that? I mean, I would do that just because of sheer embarrassment. Actually, no, I wouldn't. If I found out that I was uh, accidentally in a half a marathon, I would... I'm done. I'd, I'd be done, and I'd call a taxi over, an Uber car. In the middle of the race. Uh-huh. <laughs> just Uber my way. Catch you later, <laughs> fools. Like, this was dumb. How did I, how did I get here? Yeah, I would just Uber my way back to the starting line. So super cool. Lie Denise, Lie Denise, I don't know how you say your name. Rodriguez, congratulations. You just ran yourself half a marathon. By the way, it's probably not healthy for 12-year-olds to run half marathons. I mean, that's, a, that's hard on the body. Have you ever read about how Spartans were trained? No. Have you? Well, my, my brother has, and he told me. What did he tell you? They, they run them like they tell them they're going to do 5Ks, and then they end up running half marathons. Well, like they have full armor on, oh. and like they have – like for them, it's, it's okay to steal. Like they're encouraged to steal, but if they get caught, they get killed. Ooh. And so like they go through this whole like childhood of like wow. learning to steal, but like Is in this... danger of being killed. Well, this explains a lot, Ben. Is this is this what you were raised on? Um, some of some of the principles. Is that why you wear applies. armor? Yeah, I understand. Don't worry about it. But it does explain a lot. Is that why you always yell Sparta? <laughs> we we are, are Sparta. Sparta. <laughs> That's it. Good times. Always fun with Ben. We were just joking at the break that none of you even know what he really looks like because we keep him. In a box. At the end of the show, we just lock him in his box. He's a really good-looking guy. So if there are any ladies out there looking, half of what we've said about him is true. And the other half, totally true. So watch out. one eight five five chat byu one eight five five chat byu We'd love to line your daughters up with this ruggedly good-looking 24-year-old. Are you 24? 22. 22-year-old. Acts like he's 18, though. That's the neat thing about it. I usually get 14, so yeah. it's actually a big You're getting better. So. Aging. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your guide on the side. 
your coach. We do what we can on this program to give you the information you need to uh, guide your life and make it what you need it to be. You've only got so many years on this big ball of mud, and you may as well turn them into something magical, or at least less annoying. That's what we try to do on the show. Give you all the information you need, and then after studying it last hour, we figured out we give you some things you need and some other things that are just seriously funny that make you feel good. Just trying to put a smile on your face. That's right. Or point out other people who, I don't know, like the dumb criminal stuff. I think people find that funny. I think they do too. I think they also feel better that they're not like that. I think there's an element of that, yes. It's it's just psychology. It's basic psychology. Today, uh, we have a great guest coming on um, who's going to talk about a, pro- a program he invented for people that are trying to create more accountability in their lives over something that they don't want to do. For example, um, pornography, You people – you can get addicted to it. You keep going back to it. You go back to it. It starts to impact the family, the marriage, your your life. And our guest, Tyler Patterson, is going to be with us in a few moments to talk about um, how to, to create accountability so you don't go do that, so you can actually own what you're doing. And um, and I think I, I see it when I coach couples because you got to build trust somehow. And if you violated the trust with your wife by looking at pornography um, and that's – and she's hurt, building the trust back is really hard. It's even harder just to build your own sense of self-confidence back because you might know you have this Achilles heel, this problem that makes it hard. So Tyler's going to be here to talk to us about his, uh, his online program to help us uh, create more accountability around pornography and um, other issues like that. We'll be getting to that in a few moments. Also, BYU Sports Nation, we've got to go visit our good buddies there, find out what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour, plus a lot of crazy headlines. I got one that is going to give you the creeps. And no, it does not involve Ben. But most, it, it will. Most do. Some this one the, does not. This one doesn't. We are Sparta. <laughs> That's Ben's new mantra. Uh, But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Young voters really want to see a third-party candidate on the ballot this November. A new poll out Wednesday by Florida Republican consulting firm Data Targeting reveals that a shocking 91% of voters under the age of 29 favor having an independent candidate on the ballot. The support for an independent candidate is not quite so strong among total voting population, but it's still there. The survey of 979 national voters found that 55% have an, have, uh, favor having an independent candidate running in 2016. In a hypothetical matchup between Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, and a generic third-party candidate, Trump snagged 34%, Clinton got 31 and the third-party candidate 21%. Hmm. So there's there's desire. I just don't think there's a third-party candidate that wants to step up and fill that role. Yeah, who wants to get into that mess? Director of National Intelligence James Clapper said Wednesday that the FBI and Homeland Security are working with the 2016 presidential candidates after indications that foreign hackers are spying on them and their campaigns. This in the Associated Press. According to experts, Trump and Clinton's current campaign networks are not secure enough to stop such attacks. Clapper added that the intelligence community expects more cyber threats against the campaigns. This was also true 
the last election cycle with President yeah. Obama and Mitt Romney. Woo. Perhaps you've heard Donald Trump sharply criticize Nabisco, Carrier, and Ford for closing down U.S. manufacturing facilities and moving those jobs to Mexico, China, or some other country. Or recall his proposed boycott of Apple because they make their products in China and then ship them back here. According to his financial disclosure, the Trump campaign that they filed with the Federal Election Commission on Tuesday and made public Wednesday, Trump owns stock and bonds in all of those companies Hmm. or their parent companies. According to Bloomberg News, he's earned up to $75,000 from bonds issued by Nabisco, Ford, and Carrier since January 2015. He currently holds $1.1 million to $2.25 million a million dollars stock in Apple. But then he beats him up and he yells about him and then is invested and succeeds either way. Does that seem sketchy that you call them out but you own stock? Yeah. Should he divest? I think he should give us all of his stock. We could. It wouldn't go far. It's only a couple million in Apple. I'll take it. And some thousand. He wouldn't just give it to you. Why? He'd probably, I mean, you wouldn't. Why wouldn't he? That's just not going to happen. I mean, it could. He would sell it. I'm an optimist. It could totally happen. And uh, finally, you've probably already forgotten that last year, or actually in 2012, LinkedIn was hacked. Oh, I remember. You remember that? I was on LinkedIn at the time. But you could still be affected by that four-year-old security breach. According to a website called Motherboard, someone is going by the name of Peace is selling, if he hasn't already sold them yet, 117 million LinkedIn usernames and password combos on the dark web for five Bitcoins or around $2,300. Wow. So basically go change your password on LinkedIn. If you remember that you have a LinkedIn account. I better write that down and make a note. Now, I was going through my LinkedIn because I changed the password this morning because people keep bothering me on it. What did you change it to? I'm uh, not going to tell you. It's kind of the point of the password. It's but, a long password. I know. But I, I scrolled down a little bit, and I saw your yeah. link, your, Matt, your, your LinkedIn profile, mm-hmm. and I had a question about it. What? It, it, it says Matt Townsend, Ph.D. Yeah. We've Dr. talked Matt. about Dr. that. Dr. Matt Townsend. Um, and then it goes author, mm-hmm. speaker, yeah. relationship and team building expert, mm-hmm. humorist, yeah. and media personality. Right. That's it. My question was with the humorist okay. designation. Yeah. Uh-huh. Is that one of them skills that other people can endorse? Did you endorse? just say them skills? Them skills that someone can endorse. Like I, negotiating that's or a great, problem solving. I, I don't know. Or, is it? I don't know. I'm asking. I don't know. Is it endorsable? Well, let's endorse it right now. My, the other, well, we'd, have favor? To, we'd have to agree on it, wouldn't we? The next question okay. I have. Yeah. Is that a self-applied label? No. Or as other people told you that yes, you are a humorist. That's my PR people. The people that work for you. Yeah. Because So your your yes people are telling you yes is what you're you're saying. Well the people I pay to tell me yes, yes. are telling me yes. Right. They okay. they're not telling me yes, they're saying you are a humorist. Humorist. What they say is you're a, you're funny. You should have been a comedian. And I'm like, I never could have been a comedian. I never could have been. And then they said, Maybe you could just be an intellectual comedian. Hmm. That comments on things, and they, I go, yeah, what's that called? And then they said, I think that's a humorist. Okay. Now, it, end of the story. There is it. Just can you just do that? And call yourself something, or do you need to have no, you, some sort of qualification to be a humorist? You have to have humor. And again, back to ist. my question: At what point will I see, like, 
you know, evidence well, of Well, Donald, yeah. Donald Trump called himself a politician, and look at him now. I guess we can just label ourselves whatever we want. That's exactly right. Well, but Donald, Donald didn't label himself that. John Miller labeled Donald that. Oh, hey, John Miller. I forgot. His, his spokesperson his that PR he was acting as. So you yeah. are a humorist. Uh, yeah. And if you, here's your dilemma. Oh, go ahead. You've, you've never seen me speak. I have not. Exactly. I've, I've heard, but mostly just from you, how no. well, well you're know, speaking you, goes. All you have to do is pay the money and come to one of my events. <laughs> well, there's the – That's the point. So there's that pe- limiting people factor. people will pay to come see you and then they leave money. and they say they laughed so hard that they hmm. – their ribs hurt, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then you've therefore qualified as a humorist. So do you hold back on the radio show? No. The problem is – have you ever heard the quote, you're only as good as the people around you? Hey, I make jokes all the time and they are not appreciated. I create the environment for you. Yeah, you're not a humorist. You are an ist, though. An ist at some level, you are. Oh, crap. There you're you go. a humorless ist. <laughs> that, um, I guess that, I guess you're done with the news. So change your LinkedIn password and apparently Matt's a humorist. News to me. Well, if you had read my bio and had gone to my events. <laughs> there it is. Our studio See? audience is laughing. Isn't that perfect? No. So I just flew in from Chicago. Are you Boy, are don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> this is great. You don't even have to work for these. Yeah. Hey, did you guys know? Um, you probably don't know this. Maybe you do. It's kind of. Assuming a lot right there. Uh, you know, uh, do you know who Robin Robin Wright is? Yes. I do. She plays, she's on the House of Cards. She's, she's uh, the she's first lady at the moment. First lady. See, this is why Ben. Yeah. This Ben's is, not a humorist. Yeah, there's nothing ben funny happening right now. Comedic timing. Yeah, it's almost too bad he has all those buttons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she, they were, they were redoing her contract and she held out and said, I'm not going to. Do the show unless I make the same money as Kevin Spacey. Yeah. I kind of question this. Why? I she, – she's like – like just, you know, you watch the show and you're like, does, does, she, does her – what she adds to the show is that the, the same as what Kevin Spacey adds to the show. Yeah. See, that's what I don't know. And I mean because you want her to have equal pay yeah. for – this is where it gets so subjective for the value she brings. But – all value is not equal. And right? then you, you get the idea of a, a star and a co-star. Yeah. Right? The show was made for Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Now, her, She's fantastic. Her role in the show has expanded greatly from being just his wife to being a key component to all his you know dealings right. on the show. And so you kind of have this debate as a... As a, someone has you know seen the show, how, what is her value to the show? Is she equal to the guy who's supposed to be the the name that to draw people to watch the show? See, I don't, I don't know. I think no. the writers could find out because if she were assassinated on the show, yeah, people people do would find the show themselves in that still situation. Go forward, yeah, and I think with Kevin Spacey it would because can you imagine the storyline? Or he, he, he's not a good man. I know. It could be he. So anyway, and they've got marital issues. Yes. So, you know, maybe she just, she just goes to a tropical island 
and Good, they do a yeah. season without her. That's the only way I think you could tell the impact she really has. I don't think you can decipher it anyway. Unless I, they I, pay. I, I read that yesterday. I was like, well, they paid her. Well, yeah, and if they paid her, then good. obviously it's like, okay. But now Kevin Spacey might be like, hold it. But at the same time, I want more. There is a huge element of that show that is her. Oh, yeah. And the little th- the things she does behind the scenes mm-hmm. at times undermining her husband, who is the president at the moment. Yeah. Which is very interesting. And she is. It's a great show. I. I and then they have these moments where they just kind of stand there and look at each other like, yeah, I did that. What are you going to do about it? It's basically a contract that made her $5.5 million. There you go. A year. They're making good money. They're only doing, what, 20 or 15 episodes, 16 episodes. A year. about 500000 an episode. They're doing okay. Yeah. No, no one's suffering there. It's almost like the Matt Townsend show money. No, not really. Not even really close. <clears throat> Seemed like it. So did you – have you talked about the serial splasher? No. Is, it, is that a serial splasher? Guy in London. Yeah. Driving around oh, in a 4x4. Okay. Four four. Did you? Yeah, I heard about it. But yeah, talk yeah about so it. he's driving around in a 4x4. Four four. When it rains, he gets out there and then finds huge puddles near, next, next to pedestrians and just drives through them so he could splash the pedestrians. Yeah, that's funny. Have you ever done that? No. I have. Well, that's rude. It was kind of an accident, but, you know, halfway through, you're like, uh-oh, and then you kind of watch because, you know, I mean, you just splashed a bunch of people. You're a monster. Totally. Yes. Did I feel bad? I did. I felt bad but about my actions. But you circled and did it again. No, I did not. Yes, you did. I know you did. It was fun, though, to try to do that in a Ford Escort because <laughs> it felt like you were destroying the front end of the car yeah, as and you were diving into these, these, these puddles. In a, in a, uh, in a 4 by 4 SUV, you're lifted big tires. Yeah. then you, and, Is that why you bought – is that why you went from the Ford to the truck? No. I'm driving a car now. So, But now you're back. But you went up. So it says the police for, force in uh, the London area trying to trace the owner with the view – to charge him with careless driving, motorists caught committing the offense can be prosecuted under a law for selfish or a- aggressive behavior on the road. Those convicted may also see an increase in their car insurance premiums. Really? Yeah, that's how the, how the laws are set up over there. So a guy's driving around. Yeah. Splashing Splashing people. people, and people are mad about it. The police are trying to, trying to catch a serial splasher. I can't believe you admitted on the air that you do that. Uh, it, was, it was an accident. It was in a Ford Escort, so it didn't quite Accident. get the the range of a splash yeah. that a four by four would get. Well, but. plus, well, but the dangerous thing was your fender flew off. <laughs> you a, almost decapitated somebody. It was a Ford Escort. Those things are kind of like a pair. Of, you know, they could of break Legos. on you. At, I mean, especially an older one at high speeds when you're going through a lake. Danger zone. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Tyler Patterson will be joining us, and he's going to introduce us his uh, an app called Ever Accountable. It is an app that helps you increase your accountability um, with what you're viewing online. It's a pretty interesting tool and some, uh, I think some cool psychology behind it as well. You know, instead of just making it so you filter everything out, people still need to make choices and learn to just change. So that's where accountability comes in. Interesting idea. Stick with us. We'll be talking about it up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with the Internet at our fingertips, uh, now on our smartphones, tablets, and computers, we get bombarded with a lot of content every day. 
And although a lot of the content is very, very helpful to us, it could also be hurtful. Um, today, I think everyone can agree that it's hard to avoid pornography, for example, on the Internet. It's hard to protect our families from it as well. And I just think of my young kids being exposed to to pictures, to things that they don't need to see, they don't understand. I want to protect them from it. But then, I mean, even as adults, it impacts us and it impacts our relationships a lot. So if we can't necessarily rely on the people bringing this stuff to us, um, how do we protect our families from pornography? And um, we, we may have gone back to the old values of old with our next guest. Tyler Patterson joins us. He owns an organization, an app actually called Ever Accountable. And what he's basing his entire app on is the old, good old age old wisdom of choice and accountability. Tyler Patterson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. And this this product, it's a – I mean, pornography, a lot of people come out and they fight against pornography and they usually just put – they just ban it. They they put a, uh, a filter on so that the, yeah. their family can't access sites like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but your approach is a little bit different. How did how did you get into the fighting for the cause of, of anti-pornography, you know – not filtering, but how did you how did you find your approach to managing these temptations? Well, back in 2010, I was I was looking for something to protect myself. Honestly, um, I I know that I'm human, and we're all susceptible. Um, and I know that that uh, pornography causes trouble. I, I believe to everyone that it touches. Yeah, it's been linked to all sorts of things like uh, increased rate of divorce. Um, People who view a lot of pornography tend to devalue monogamy and marriage and child rearing. Yeah, um, they objectify women. They, I mean, it changes you. It changes how you see th- people. Yeah, and and uh, a leader at our church was was telling everyone how he had a filter on his computer and only his wife had the password to it, and he recommended that everyone go out and and do this, put yeah. this on there to keep ourselves safe because we're human, we're susceptible, and I don't want. Something like this to affect my family um, through me. Yeah, and the filter is an interesting idea because I guess it keeps everything out and away. But I, I'm not sure that it teaches us to manage our choices and to manage our our own character. Like I see, I, I can have the filter at my house, but my son could go to someone else's house mm-hmm. and see something. So then I was like, I started getting worried. Well, wow. There's got to be more than just filtering it. Yeah, filters are based on force, and uh, they say no, you can't go to that site. Um, it's been said that every filter will fail eventually, yeah. except the internal filter that we have inside of us. Some call it our conscience. And the cool thing about accountability is that it helps. It gives someone freedom to make their own choices, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time holds them accountable for those choices. And, and and really, age old principle, right? Accountability. So so the, your your site. Tell us how it works. What what do they they get on? And and um, if, if if you go to everaccountable.com, you can see the site. But what was the what was your what was your approach? And how are you different than? Are there other sites out there that do what you do? Um, yeah. So so back when I I tried out a filter for myself, and I found it was a. It was just a bad fit. It would block things at the wrong yeah. times, and and uh, I I think I like to think that I'm rather tech savvy, and 
I could have probably found a way around it if I'd wanted to anyway, right. so it just it wasn't working for me. I thought all I need is something that will hold me accountable to my wife. Just tell her where what websites I'm going to and and that's all I need. I know I won't even be tempted to go there if if she knows what I'm doing. Yeah. Which I think is so great because it's kind of it's something that you can almost make a commitment to your spouse and say I don't want to look at this stuff. It's out there. It's tempting. I don't want to look at it, but I'm going to be accountable to, to you. And I guess it's probably also driving more communication between you two. Yes, that's the cool part about accountability is is it it in, encourages these com, these uh, conversations. If someone um, goes to a place, they maybe a gray area or somewhere that that has been trouble for them in the past, and you have a conversation about it. Uh, you asked how the app works. Yeah. What you do is you you uh, you can go to the Google Play Store and and download it onto your phone, and you put in your accountability partner. That's that's the email address of of your wife or your your clergy or mm-hmm. uh, a close friend or parent, um, and then. The app will record the websites you visit and just send a report once a week to that person. Hmm. And so they, they can see what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real simple idea. And we found that it's incredibly powerful. Um, the, uh, Dr. Kevin Skinner, he's a, yeah, I know um, Kevin. Yeah. A, a therapist, a licensed therapist and pornography recovery expert. He said that accountability is the difference between success and failure. Right. I mean, a lot of times, we, we, like you said earlier, we're forcing our kids, like, don't look at this. Don't go near this stuff. But um, they need the tools, too. To I mean, and it might just simply be if they know that they're going to be caught, if they know that it's going to be seen by their parents and we're going to have a discussion, Yeah. then it, what you might also learn is that these kids are not just learning to be afraid of seeing something online, or, but they're also, you're, they're also going to see what you are searching. They are going to see if you're searching a lot of video game stuff. They are going to see – as a parent, it seems like I would get to know my child even better because it's not just about the pornography even. I'm going to see everything they're looking at or trying to find. Yeah, that's right. It shows everything that they're doing. Um, And uh, another thing that that, uh, parents appreciate is it shows the amount of time you're spending on different apps. Uh, I had one guy – he told me that he installed Ever Accountable and was shocked to see he'd spent 25 hours the last week playing Clash of Clans. Did he? <laughs> and so he, he said it's not worth my time. 25 hours. <laughs> yeah. Was that an adult? Yeah. What was their – were they married? I don't know. What was their wife thinking? That's I don't crazy. Know. Why is it just a little bit of time here, yeah. a little bit there, and maybe at night when you're supposed to be sleeping. Isn't it that adds it? Because up. a lot of times you might get in an argument with your spouse saying, you're on Facebook all the time. And she's like, no, I'm not. Well, now you'll have data. <laughs> yeah. So you can, I guess you can sign your entire family up on the plan. Is that how it works? And then uh, every, you can see everybody? Yeah. You can put all your all your family members on there. It's just a nine ninety nine. Ten bucks a month. That's uh, not anything to all your devices. accountability. Yeah. And, you, and all of your devices, you, gen, you then just download the app to all of the devices. Yep. That's and then cool. you put the parents on there as the accountability partners so they'll get these reports of, of what everyone in the family is doing. That is I, – I love it. I mean we've had some other experts on the show, even some BYU faculty that talk about a lot of times we push so hard on people that are doing pornography – um, and that they they kind of go underground with it and they hide it because it creates such shame. Yeah. 
And and yet in reality, the minute you do that, they just overshame. The shame causes more anxiety. The anxiety drives more of a use of pornography and it creates a really ugly cycle. This is yeah. one where we don't have to mention it except it's going to come up. Yeah. And, you know, I had a customer talk about this. He thought that he had found a loophole in, in Ever Accountable to where he could he could do things on his phone without the app noticing. And he said this. He said uh, – I believed I could lie about it, thinking your software wouldn't catch what I was doing. To my horror and shame, my deepest secret was exposed through Ever Accountable because it had recorded conversations I had been having through this app. There was no getting out of this or getting away from it. And ironically, the exposure brought me great comfort, and I was able to feel secure and protected, but not only that, realized that my relationship with God had improved remarkably. Wow. So you take away this this secret he'd had it was was out and and not out to the world but yeah. but out to this person or his close friend who he trusted so he could finally talk about it and deal with it. Yeah. That actually probably becomes a big issue where what do we say? I mean just as a relationship coach I'd sit there and worry about the conversations we have. Because this is going to demand two things on both sides. It's going to demand the person that might be struggling with with pornography. They're going to have to be more open and honest. And then the spouse is going to have to also make it safe for them mm-hmm. to share what's really happening. And that's, that, takes, that takes accountability too. That takes character as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and nobody's perfect. No one, so yeah. both sides are human. Um, there's this quote that uh, from – from a psychologist named Tess Marshall that that she said when when you find out your loved one has been viewing pornography how do you handle it I had this question myself once yeah. as an accountability partner um, and she said confront your loved one ask questions and offer support do it without attack be bold be gentle and be honest seek to understand and be prepared to listen mm. I, I like that approach because yeah. it's it's very human and it it uh, gets this this healthy conversation going. Which really, again, is what is what we need. I think bring it out and let's start talking about it and deal with it. There are reasons. I mean, I guess the number one and two driver for people that use pornography, one was anxiety. Hmm. So they do it to feel less stress. And another uh, was boredom. Yeah. When you're doing 25 hours of a video game, for example, there's a concept of boredom in there. Yeah. You've got obviously some time to do stuff and um, and or you're stressed and trying to just avoid having to do the stuff. So if boredom and anxiety are the drivers, then what's interesting about your product is all of a sudden it allows us to to kind of be more – I mean to me this almost is more than just pornography, isn't it? Because I can see my wife's using a Facebook app. Yeah. Right? And I can see how many hours she's on Facebook and she can see how many times I'm on sports or, you know, bleacher report. Everyone can see how much time we're spending and now we just have conversations about how we allocate time. Yeah. I mean, I love that. That changes in my world. That changes the discussion from being you're a horrible dirty sinner <laughs> to what are we all doing? Yeah, the the whole idea is to to make ourselves better and improve. Yeah. I believe that that we all have maybe it sounds a little cliche, but we have greatness in us, and there's there's things that we can go out there and do, and other people need us to do, yeah. whether that's just as a friend or a spouse or maybe in your job um, and we can't do those things we can't become the person we want to be if 
if we are wasting too much time or wrapped up in something like pornography. Right. And um, do you talk about your your success rates, your effectiveness? What do you see percentage-wise? I mean, how many people are using it? What feedback do you get? And what do the statistics say? Um, how many people? We've got – this is running on over 10,000 devices worldwide right now. Wow. Uh, that's a lot of people from every religion and and men, women, parents using it to protect their kids yeah. while still teaching their kids how to how to make good choices. Um, as for success, so we do surveys of our customers and we find that when they install Ever Accountable, they report that eighty nine percent of their pornography viewing goes down. That's for the people who are already viewing pornography that's, to begin with. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and well, some would say, well, yeah, but there's still ten percent. Except it's ten percent with accountability, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Some of that is is people where. So I believe that accountability, the principle of accountability, is is perfect and bulletproof. Yeah, I, I I'm convinced that and it's, and it descri- works. define what you mean by accountable, so the listeners know. Accountable means that you're being transparent to someone else. And uh, you're not hiding anything, um, and you you have conversations where you can talk. It's out there, and yeah, yeah. The minute you're hiding it, you know you're in violation, and it's a secret. Yeah. And then you're going to have shame. That's kind of the inevitable pattern. It seems like. Yeah. You hide por- it. Pornography is all about secrecy. It, That's it right. thrives in the secrecy. You shine light on it and bring some accountability to it, and it it just fades away. Yeah, I think that's. That's super powerful. So then, the, it goes down. The drop goes down. Are you? Are you? Um, do you only talk about the pornography side of it, or do you also push the other sides, the other uses of it? What are other ways you've seen people using your program? Well, we we mostly just talk about the, the anti pornography side of it, but uh, but there is this other aspect of um, time management that that I think people find find helpful. We haven't talked much about that one yet yeah i mean the the powerful thing too about it is even for a family just to get on and to do a quick you know assessment or like audit Mm -hmm. by putting it on for three months and then auditing everyone's use for example we just received a crazy phone bill with all of my teenage kids and we were 40 we we had pay 45 dollars more because we went over our allotted hours Mm mm-hmm and then – but we took the bill coming and then looking at the bill and finding out who's the biggest user and abuser. <laughs> but what's funny is – and we worry about that. So right, so all the listeners out there are worried about their, their children and how much they're charging and overcharges and everything. But if we had the same audit to find out where their time was going on those devices – so I know that some of them used 10 gig – or 10 gig? 10 gigs of – Yeah. Is it gig? 10? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, of streaming or whatever. And I'm thinking, I don't even know what you were doing with all of that. This would tell me what you were doing with that, all of that. Yeah, I would streaming. guess that's someone was watching some YouTube videos. Yeah, that'll, exactly. that'll burn it up quick. And so if all of a sudden you're like, you just spent that much time on YouTube. Yeah. And your grades are this. Come on. It just, I think it's powerful. I mean, in an audit or, or whatever you got to do, I think, uh, I think it's pretty amazing. But, um, what uh, what? How can people go to the program? How can they look at it? What are they supposed to do? So, just Google Ever Accountable, and it'll be the it'll pop up there. And 
install it on your phone or your computer. We support right now Android phones, Kindle phones, so like all the Samsung devices. Yeah. Pretty much everything except iPhones. We're working on that still. Um, also, um, Windows PCs. You put it on your devices. Set up your account. We, we try and make it as easy as you, we can. And you'll get, if you use the promo code Dr. Matt, yeah. when you sign up, you'll get a, a, f- a month free. That's we'll great. That for you. So that's for, so you're, you, anyone on iOS systems can't, it doesn't work yet. No. So no MacBooks, no, but you're working on that. When do you think that'll be available? We may have a iPhone and iPad browser ready soon. It won't work quite the same because of restrictions that Apple puts on there. But uh, it'll be something for those and maybe within a month or two. Okay, great. So they can be looking forward to that. And they just need to go to everaccountable.com and then enter in the promo code Dr. Matt and they get a month free. Yeah. And we've we've actually had quite a few people tell us that they switched from their iPhones to Android. Yeah, just for that. For for this app. just Stuff like this isn't available on, on Apple devices. Right. And prob- from what we can see won't be available until until Apple changes some of their policies. Interesting. So maybe that's a that's a little revolt we ought to create. <laughs> I mean, at least help us protect our families. Come on, Apple. Um, anyway, interesting stuff. Tyler, we appreciate your great work and ever accountable. Thanks for doing something to fight and actually, I guess, improve accountability in our families and our marriages. It's important work. Yeah. Tyler Patterson, thanks again. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, we're having a party, and we're going to shoot it down now to our good buddies, Spencer and Jason, down at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Good morning, Matt. How are you? You know, great. Just celebrating up here. What, what are we celebrating? Uh, nothing, Life? really. Just Life? another Thursday. Celebrating Thursday. You know what? I have to tell you something. What? Uh, the, the song you played yesterday for us coming into the segment. Yes. From Disturbed, Sound of Silence. Yes. Could not get it out of my head. Couldn't All you? I, I ended <laughs> up buying the song. Yes, I, yes. Uh, I have watched the video, not exaggerating, probably 15 times. Really? <laughs> I, I've and, never seen the video. Okay. Oh, the video is very good. Yes, I'm going to go do that. And I also watched the live performance that the group did on Conan. Uh, probably two or three times. Holy cow. I, I ruined you. I'm completely you. hooked. I'm I hooked. ruined you. But we, you know what's interesting? Because you guys recommended another uh, song from Disturbed. Mm-hmm. And we were listening to that yesterday, and it actually gave me a headache. Now, yeah, The Land of Confusion, it is much more uh, hardcore, if you will. Yeah. It's it's definitely one of those ones that, yeah, you, it, if you've got a migraine, you want to stay far away from so it. That's not one you're going to want to do. No. But I didn't know. You you really – so now what's great is you just helped me set up my entire afternoon. Now oh, I will, watching it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to go watch that all day. I, I, I just wanted to let you know <laughs> that you brought uh, a lot of joy yesterday because I, I've, I've fallen in love with that song. That is great. See, that's why we're here. I appreciate it. We're here to to spread the joy. You know what? I've got some joy for you. Okay. Is, is Spencer alive? Wait a second. Did you already discuss whether that one was better than Simon and Garfunkel? 
Oh, no. But we know it's not. Well, I, Whoa, I, Casey, I, I think we need to go there, Matt. I like it better. Do you like it better? I, but see, I like it better. And I know that yeah. that's like sacrilegious to a lot of people. It is. It kind of is. But I, I like it better. But the, the singer from Disturbed is has just a bald head. And he's got I don't I don't even like what what is that chin, chin rings? He's got what chin you, rings. What do you even call that? I it's don't a, even know. It's a chin ring. Okay. It sounds like it's some other language. But um but I think if you look at Garfunkel and if you could put Garfunkel's hair on the disturbed guy <laughs> that sounds weird too. On the, I'm, the I'm lead sure singer I'm just of disturbed. caught up in the euphoria of loving it so much. Yeah. That I'm I'm blinded by its no, greatness. No, but it, it, that, that was just a great Version this, you're right. I think you're honestly. I personally do prefer the disturbed version. Wait, what? Thank you, Matt. Of the sound of silence. What? But here's but here's my problem. But because I can't. But I grew up loving the Simon Garfunkel one. Yes. So I can't. To me, they're just different. How can you go against the OG, Matt? Here's the original. (laughs) The OG. Yeah. Here's but, the thing. But I don't. I don't put him as, as. I don't rank him in a hierarchy. I put him side by side. Paul Simon has given his thumbs up to the Disturbed version. Ooh. As a matter of fact, Ooh. after the appearance on Conan, trust me, I spent all day. Not all day, <laughs> but enough of my day. Yeah. Researching this. <sighs> he actually sent him an email telling him how much he loved it. Did he really? Oh, yeah. what an honor! There you go. But so it sounds like um, it sounds like Spencer is. Uh, is just a, f- a, a fan of the OG. I like the new one, but there's just something pure and simple yes. about the original. And hippie-ish. It was very. It was a very pure and simple time, Spence. Yeah. Yes, and I miss that. <laughs> you weren't even alive then, were you? When the Simon and Garfunkel original version came yeah. out. Yeah. What year, What year was that? What was that? Sixties. Yeah, it was definitely not. Uh, alive. Yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> were not born. <laughs> yeah. So I miss the idea of that, Matt. Yeah. Exactly. But don't you like the idea uh, of the new one is more about aliens coming to destroy Earth? With, it, with in, chin rings. With chin rings. <laughs> and earrings. Yes. Yeah. That guy's all ringed up. Hey, I've got another one i got to talk to you about. Um, okay. Yeah, be, what about your joy? Um, here's, here's my joy of the day. Okay. Okay. Uh, there's two things I want to talk about. Are you guys hot pepper guys? Yes. Are you? Yes, very much. The more uncomfortable it can make my stomach, the better. Like nope. jalapenos and yeah, but like seriously, I hate that. Oh, I was yeah. up, I was up all night the other night just because I had a piece of pepperoni pizza at like nine o'clock. Wow, you are super sensitive. Yeah, yeah. that's actually just it's just my older system. <laughs> okay, <laughs> my system's giving in. It's way it's wearing out. Okay, so have you guys ever heard of um, the Carolina Reaper chili pepper? I have not no. heard of the Carolina Reaper, but it sounds it, absolutely it appalling. It sounds deadly. It, it is. On, on there, there's a scale called the Scoville Heat Unit Scale, and it measures over 1.5 million on the Scoville Heat Unit Scale. That's the Doug Scoville Heat Index, correct? I don't, I don't know if it's the Doug Scoville. <laughs> I'm not that into this. I'm pretty – I don't know. No, I mean, yeah. trying to bring a little BYU flair to Okay, to see, good. See, yeah, I don't okay. know Doug Scoville. Um, um, here's the thing, though. It's the world's hottest chili pepper. So wow. a guy named Wayne Al- Algenio, 31, of Jamaica, Queens, broke the record after eating 22 of these hot peppers. 
22. What did he win? A free ride in an ambulance? He probably won like a free mill somewhere. <laughs> but um, he, he broke the Guinness Book world of World Records. He, can't, he couldn't have any liquids while eating the peppers, not even water. And you eat as many as you can in a minute. And then after that is over, you have to stand there for another minute without oh. vomiting or drinking any liquids. Oh, oh my goodness. And he, this, this was his quote. After I stopped, I could feel the burn in my throat. It's an excruciating pain. <laughs> and then he said he drank milk to soothe his burning throat. Yes. Yeah, you don't want to drink water. Yeah. Water the, does nothing. Weird thing, uh, he passed out. He passed away that, that night. What? Just kidding. Oh, he was, uh, I'm like, he was it burnt. kind of sense. It just got really weird. I know. Burnt from the inside out. Can you imagine, though? I couldn't eat one of those, and... So you guys aren't you 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 do like that is that right Jason why I do like now now to that level I mean I've obviously never had anything that hot yeah but yes I I fully enjoy being um, uncomfortable what what is your what is your um, Scoville heat unit number oh I have no idea like I, if, I, I don't know yeah I mean I just I have no problem eating hot things and and the hotter like if if you go to a, like a restaurant and then there's well, there's there's a certain restaurant that I like to go to, and and I like to get the uh, the the spicy chicken with the with the rice. Oh, and McDonald's. They have like different levels. I always get the death crier. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Spencer, you've gone quiet. I am thinking about how awful it sounds to eat anything, <laughs> anything like what the Carolina Reaper. Well, or anything that has death crier. Why? Why do people want to hurt themselves that way? Okay, let me let me give you one more thing. There is an easier way to hurt yourself Ugh. if if you're looking for it. Yeah, this is probably going to burn your throat, and you'll never be the same. No, this hey, will, why this, not? No, this will be. This is so much easier than that. Did you guys ever? Do you ever just go shopping for flowers for your wife? I've done that before. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So a man uh, in North Carolina, he went down to a Lowe's looking for a surprise for his wife. Okay, maybe some flowers for her. Okay. And uh, while he was looking at a tree, a four, four and a half foot copperhead came out of the tree and bit him. Oh. One of the trees that they sell at Lowe's had a copperhead. What in the world? In the tree. Okay. So did he, is he like, he it bit his arm. He, he's in a lot of pain and it's a venomous snake, obviously, but he's okay. He's going to live. What and they the just, world? I know, they just rubbed some uh, Carolina Reaper chilies on it. <laughs> what, what are we, what, what is At this? that point, the Lowe's general manager came over and sucked all the venom out. <laughs> you know, sir, you're not allowed to bring a snake in this store. We've got, we've, the snake we've got hawks swooping I down I yesterday, no, today I mean, it's snakes they... jumping out of trees. Uh-huh. So watch out when you go, ooh. Yeah, circle of life, folks. Is Lowe's responsible, though? Like, are I don't they know. in trouble? Well, that, you know what? Luckily, they did go check all of their trees, and they found that there were no more snakes in their there trees. no more copperheads. Can you believe that? You never would think at a store like that that you'd be dealing with a snake. That is terrifying. Right? So now, everywhere I go, I assume there's a snake. That's terrifying. Take a machete. That's what I do. They call I'm sure me Machete Matt. I'm fine walking into Lowe's with a machete. That's What's right. the Crocodile Dundee thing? Uh-huh. And I wear a little wife beater hey, t shirt. Nice knife. Yeah. Nice knife, man. Hey, um, so this what, is a knife. you guys can bring these two stories up on your show if you'd like to. Okay. What, uh, what, what are you guys talking about today? Reaching 
full potential. Ooh, wow, profound. Looking at BYU basketball specifically, mm. when is it going to happen? No, que- like it's obvious that the expectations are high. Okay, we can all feel it. The players can feel it. In fact, I had conversations with a couple of them, and they are well aware of the hype train and the expectations that have been heaped upon them. Okay? Good job. So we're going to discuss how and when they reach that full potential and use Jimmer Fredette as a case study. Wow. Plus they're going to have a new building. They're, they'll be able to practice so much better. All of that factors into it. I'm telling you. That's a good topic. Yeah. Reaching full potential. There you go. That's so, is it. That's, That's going to be good. Show. Yes. Okay. okay. Anything else? Anything what else? else? We got Jace. Uh, Bill Huber. And if you don't know who Bill Huber is, he's actually the publisher of PackerReport.com. He covers the Green Bay Packers. Sweet. And since uh, we're in the uh, the time of the year where it's like mini camps and and free agent tryouts, uh, Manoa Pakula, former BYU linebacker, is trying to make the Green Bay Packers roster. So we'll talk with Bill and try and get an idea of what chances Manoa has of uh, maybe being a teammate of one Aaron Rodgers. Wow. That'd be cool. And of former Cougar Rob Daniel. Uh, yes, absolutely. Talk about reaching full potential. Let's go, man. That's a good show. Okay, guys, remember, you're loved. Watch out for peppers and pythons. <laughs> Carolina Reaper. And the, yeah. wow. and go have yourself some Carolina, Carolina Reapers. Reaper sounds like something super illegal. <laughs> it totally does. Dude, give me some Carolina <laughs> <Right>. Reaper. <laughs> oh. Okay, guys, have a good show. Knock them dead. <laughs> you See you guys. Him. Be good. Yeah. Yeah, that snake. Can you imagine? You're just reaching for some flowers and bada boom, bada bing, cottonhead, bam. Gotcha. It'll get you every time. I mean, you don't expect that to happen. Hmm. That's pretty freaky. That's why I don't buy my wife flowers. I'm not going to die. <laughs> could be a poison dart frog, snake. Yeah, you never know what it could be anymore. We remember we had this infestation of these banana spiders or something. No, I I actually brought those in. Oh, you did. Yeah, yeah. In your illegal fruit, you're the guy on the airplane coming from Hawaii that has like a bag full of illegal fruit that you're not claiming. Don't even claim it, right? That you guys make me so mad. Hey, uh, <laughs> as you know, we like to wrap up the show with a little hero story. I got a great one today. Holy cow. Massachusetts, this is according to Yahoo.com, Massachusetts trooper shares a meal with a panhandling homeless mom of four instead of citing her. Listen to this. A homeless mom of four down on her luck never saw this one coming. While out on a street Tuesday asking for money, she noticed a Massachusetts state trooper driving toward her before he pulled over. Certainly she was about to be cited for panhandling, right? She immediately offered to leave, authorities said. Trooper Luke Bonin, um, however, had other plans. She was holding a sign and asking for help from anyone who would pay attention, Massachusetts State Police said in a Facebook post. Trooper Trooper Bonin um, continued to drive on directly to a local establishment where he ordered two meals. He returned to the woman, pulled up, and, and exited his cruiser. Trooper Bonin told her, I'm not here to kick you out. He then extended the two meals and told her to pick one. The other meal was for Bonin, who was dressed in civilian clothing after leaving court. Unbeknownst to uh, any of the highway uh, picnickers, a passerby snapped a photo of the officer as he sat on his bumper eating and talking with the woman. The photo is making its rounds on social media with commentators praising Bonin for exchanging 
the long arm of the law for outstretched hands of care and compassion. How cool is that? So, uh, Trooper Luke Bonin, you are the you are the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. And what a great symbol for that. Instead of just the long arm of the law, how about some outstretched hands of care and compassion? Folks, every one of us could stretch our hands out uh, to those in need. And, and again, you've got your rationale, you've got your reasons, but uh, sometimes you need to turn those off and just go extend your hand. That's the goal of the show, to give you the tools, the, maybe the motivation sometimes to go be the best person you can be. We'll be back again tomorrow. More tools to help you live longer and love stronger. Until then, take care of each other.